Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 220. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by special guest co-host Ron from POC Culture for our spoiler review of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, written by Dave Callahan, Destin Daniel Cretton, and Andrew Lanham. You've heard me talk about Ron recently on the show. I mentioned during my non-spoiler review of Shang-Chi, the work that Ron was doing with the Shang-Chi Challenge, a GoFundMe campaign that raised money for kids to be able to see the film in theaters and also via private screenings on Disney Plus once the movie becomes available there. Really, really extraordinary work done by Ron and many others, but Ron organizing and leading that charge to help more people see this wonderful, wonderful movie. So make sure you check the show notes for links to where you can find that GoFundMe campaign, which will also provide links to other GoFundMe campaigns, uh, as well as links to where you can find Ron's work over at POC Culture. And then before we begin this spoiler review, just want to let you know about the premium content that we have available to subscribers on Apple Podcasts, as well as patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. That's S-E-A-N-G-E-R-B-E-R, or just hit that link in the show notes. Uh, We have the Fan Show Plus premium podcast exclusive for premium subscribers, and the latest edition of Fan Show Plus, which covers additional MCU news. It covers industry news, business news for the world of entertainment, as well as some other franchises outside the MCU that many of us are interested in. But the most recent episode of Fan Show Plus covers the outstanding box office performance of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings with a record-setting Labor Day weekend opening. So I talk about just how well the movie performed, the immediate impact that we saw on Venom Let There Be Carnage, and other impacts that we might see on movies like Eternals, Spider-Man No Way Home, and more films that are on the way in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what that means for theatrical windows versus day and date with theaters and Disney Plus with Premier Access, which of course we know doesn't really apply to something like Spider-Man No Way Home. But there's reason, based on Shang-Chi's performance, to feel a lot better about that December 17th release date for that Sony-released movie, Spider-Man No Way Home. So you can check that out on Apple Podcasts. Just search for MCU Fan Show. Go to our channel. You can subscribe, and you will have access to the separate podcast that is premium subscriber only for Fan Show Plus, or you can get it at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. And then make sure you're following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And while you're over on Apple Podcasts, if you are enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you. Thank you so much to everyone who has already taken the time uh, to leave their rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. And now let's talk about in full spoilery detail, the 25th film from Marvel Studios, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Hello, Ron. Welcome to MCU Fan Show. How you doing? Sean, thanks so much for having me. Oh, man, I'm so honored and excited to be here. I am very excited to have you on the podcast. I know that we've kind of circled each other on social media a number of times and then, you know, to finally uh, have this happen and really have a chance to talk about this awesome movie, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So excited for this to uh, be something that we get to talk about together 
But another reason why I really wanted to have you on this episode, and for those who listen to the non-spoiler review, you're already aware of this, or forget my little podcast and my little corner of the internet, if you've been paying attention to the Los Angeles Times and some other major outlets, then you might already be clued in to the point that, Ron, you did this amazing thing with the Shang-Chi Challenge raising money for charity screenings for the Boys and Girls Club in San Gabriel Valley in that area. Um, I'm very close to that area. So um, raising money for that, not just for theatrical screenings. I know you had one this weekend and you had some big names that I'll let you share uh, who showed up to that. You have more uh, another screening this weekend, but not just um, raising money for uh, kids to be able to see the movie in theaters, but also eventually private screenings for Disney Plus when it arrives there after its 45-day theatrical window. And I, I have to just really uh, give you full credit for this. It's such an amazing thing that you did um, to give these kids an opportunity to see a movie that I'm sure you knew just would mean the world to them like it would have meant to you to, to see the movie at their age. Um, but I'll, I'll shut up. I got to let you talk about this, Ron. I, I would say thank you so much for what you did. Um, and also job very well done. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I have to say, uh, I don't want to take too much credit for it because it's a, it really is a community effort. The thing that I've really been trying to emphasize is that this is the community lifting up the community for these kids uh, in the San Gabriel Valley. So the benef the beneficiary is the Boys and Girls Club of uh, West San Gabriel Valley Eastside, which they actually have five different locations in the San Gabriel Valley area. And for your listeners who don't know, the San Gabriel Valley is a huge hub of Asian Asian American community. Mm -hmm. There uh, there was one report that said there are more Asians in the San Gabriel Valley than 42 states in the country. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so it's, it's a huge hub. That I grew up in San Gabriel Valley, and I just knew, like you said, I knew this would be huge for the community. And it's been really exciting. And thank you, Sean, for for sharing it. You boosted um, the fundraising where we were running it through the your um, MCU Fan Show account, which was huge. And we've just enjoyed a little bit of boosting from from different people, including Dustin Daniel Cretton, the director. He's been so gracious and generous with supporting us. And like you hinted at, he showed up on Saturday for our first screening with the with the kids uh, um, in San Gabriel Valley, and it was amazing to have him. We also had Andy Lee, who plays the Death Dealer, and he came and and did a little bit of a demonstration for the kids too. It yeah, was a pretty he didn't awesome just day. show up. He he did a little bit more than that. That's right. He's one of those. It's funny. I was talking to him, and I said, "Do you think we could do this? Are you okay with that?" And he's one of those like he shows up ready. You know, he right. stays ready. And he was he was awesome. And even Dustin, I think, was blown away just watching him do that for the kids. Yeah, that was so awesome. Well, you know, thank you for organizing that. Yes, of course, it's a community effort with everybody sharing it and contributing. And I, I think, but also it, it does take somebody to take the initiative and organize it and keep the whole thing going. And that's what you did. So thank you for doing that. And, you know, just sharing the power of these stories that we all love so very much. It's so awesome that you took the time to do that. But this is still going, right? There's still money that's that's being raised. So tell people about that a little bit. Yeah, so we currently are just over $21,000 total. 
raise our initial goal was 10,000 just for one screening. Cause I had no idea what, how, if it would be a success or not, but thankfully it was, we got past 10,000 in less than three days wow. when we launched the fundraiser. So yeah, it was pretty amazing. So every single dollar goes straight to the boys and girls club that, um, in San Gabriel Valley. And like you mentioned, we're going to do two screenings for the boys and girls to go to the theater and, and watch it. Um, and then after that, every dollar after that is going to the Boys and Girls Club for private screenings um, once it's out on Disney+. And like I said, there are – actually, I misspoke. There are seven locations, but I think five locations are, are going to do private screenings on Disney+. And that's where the money is going to be evenly distributed at that point. Um, we're pretty much – the 20000 was our expanded goal. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to stop collecting money pretty soon. I'm just going to double-check with the Boys and Girls Club to make sure they have – the funding they need because obviously I don't want them to be in a position where they're taking a loss or anything putting these sure. uh, screenings on. Sure. And is there a place people can still go to to uh, contribute while it may still be open? Yeah I, yeah, I neglected to mention that. And you can find it on GoFundMe searching Shang-Chi Challenge. Now, here's the thing, by the way, if those who search the Shang-Chi Challenge can find more than just my fundraiser because part of the challenge element of this was to uh, encourage and and inspire others to start their own um, fundraiser screenings in their regions. Because obviously I'm located here in Southern California, um, as are you, I believe. And yes. we want kids all over the country to be able to go to these screenings. And so we've had fundraisers in Texas, in Chicago. I think there's one currently in Washington, D.C. And I partnered um, kind of semi-informally with Gold House and CAPE, the Coalition of Asian Pacifics in Entertainment, which are two huge powerhouses um, supporting Asians and Asian Americans in, in the industry. And so they do something called the Gold Open. This is all hashtag, hashtag Gold Open, hashtag Shang-Chi Challenge. Um, but we're all, we're, we kind of joined forces, if you will, Asian Avengers style. Um, and we're, we're encouraging all kinds of people to raise money for screenings in the area. So even if um, once we close our um, collecting, you're still going to be able to support uh, those kind of fundraisers in different regions. And I hope you will so that more kids can go watch them. Absolutely. So head to GoFundMe and check out and search for a Shang-Chi challenge and find the spot close to you and contribute. Or if it's not close to you, still contribute. <laughs> Either way, That's right. helping people see Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which we have seen. And now we get to talk about in full spoilery detail. But I feel like maybe we should have a little bit of a quick non-spoiler round. I did have a non-spoiler review that's already out there, but um, maybe we can talk about it a little bit because I know that there are a number of people, although you did click on a spoiler review podcast that was in the title, but um, I know that for various reasons, not everybody has seen this film just yet, whether it's because they are waiting to watch the movie on Disney+, Plus or they're waiting until maybe just the theaters are a little bit less crowded before they go. And I think everybody is perfectly valid and, and well within reason to make whatever choice they feel is best for them. So in the interest of those who maybe haven't seen the movie just yet, Ron, what did you think of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings? I follow you on Twitter, so I already know. But for the benefit <laughs> of everybody else, what did you think? That's right. And admittedly, look, it's hard for me to be unbiased about this. I don't want to come on here and act like I'm, you know, highbrow film critic who can look at everything in a very unbiased way. Of course, this film um, meant a lot to me. It was going to mean a lot to me as Marvel's first Asian-led superhero. And that's why, part of why I was pushed to start the Shang-Chi Challenge, right? Mm-hmm. But the reverse of that is um, 
it's something that members of the community, I think um, Jenny Yang and um, Angry Asian Man Phil Yu and others have coined rep sweats, which is representation sweats. Like we had this fear, the, the flip side is we have anxiety because uh, look, let's be honest, there have been a lot of films that have tried to cash in on um, saying, hey, look, we care about representation. And I won't, I'm not going to name any of those films, but right. um, they didn't do it well. And the result of it was they wanted to try to mobilize different communities, whether it's the Asian community, the black community, the Latinx community, et cetera. But the result of it was not good representation. Um, but I really felt that Marvel was going about this the right way, as they do most things, frankly, right. um, whether you, however you feel about them. You know, I, I assume if they're listening to this podcast. It, it's a they, pretty they pro MCU audience. That's for sure. that's right. Um, as am I look and part of it, part of the reason I am so pro by the way, is because I do feel like with some missteps here and there, we're not going to talk about the ancient one. Um, <laughs> they, they mostly do things the right way. And that's, that's why they're so successful. They're not just successful because they happen to, to be that way. And um, when they announced that Destin Daniel Cretton um, was directing, that was a huge plus uh, in my eyes, and it carried out the, ne- the the subsequent announcements of who's cast and what they're doing. Um, so I think they did a great job. Sorry to go along. At the end of the day, it's not a perfect film, but it's a film that um, you know successfully delivered what it intended to do. I think so, and and I think it delivered way more than I even thought it intended to deliver. I was blown away by how much this movie was changing as I was watching it and how much it was shifting between genre and it was still able to feel like one whole story as opposed to these very separate parts that are cool in their own way but don't actually come together. That wasn't the case with this film, which is why in my non-spoiler review, I called it the most, I think it is the most creatively ambitious movie that Marvel Studios has made at least at the very least for a franchise debut. I think you can certainly look at stuff in in a different context like Avengers Endgame and Infinity War bringing so many stories together. That's obviously a whole other level of creative ambition. But for one movie, a franchise debut for a brand new character and to go and occupy so many different spaces. But all of that is for not if the execution isn't there, if you don't actually make good on all the crazy things that you're doing and saying we can go in so many different directions, it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter if it doesn't feel true to the audience member. But the truth was there the whole time throughout this extraordinary film. So this is where I, I wave the spoiler flag. If you are someone who is still in the camp of waiting to see this movie, uh, first, I would just reiterate, I get it. So, uh, but if that is you and you don't wish to be spoiled, uh, this is where you definitely want to pause the show and then come back whenever uh, you get whenever you get a chance to see this wonderful movie. And I'm so happy that this movie was, I mean, I, I can't say it was as good as I thought. It was even better than I thought. And I did not get a chance to see the movie during the very earliest screenings, I had a scheduling conflict. It hurt really bad to not be able to go see the movie and see the reaction. And sometimes it's tough when you see this overwhelming, this overwhelmingly positive response that the movie had from not just critics, because critics are their own thing. Although, I mean, I'm usually part of that chorus too. So, I mean, I'm not knocking anyone, but there were also the early fan screenings around the same time. 
And so it's everyone saying this movie is amazing. And so then sometimes you feel like, oh, I, I got to keep my expectations in check because now they're starting to get into a, a space that like a movie can't actually reach. Um, and uh, so I tried to be careful about that. But I was like, I don't know. I, I just kept getting more and more hyped for the movie. And then I finally saw it. And and of course, I don't go in with like my arms crossed, like, OK, impress me. Like everybody says this is good. We'll see. That's not my style and, and never has been, never will be. So I was ready for it to be as good as people said, um, but it, it seemed like it was even better than that. It, it seemed like there was no way without spoiling the movie, which is what's so great about this episode, is it's hard to really uh, to really say just how good this movie is unless you talk about all the different things uh, that it's doing and it's uh, it's doing so well. And we'll just start at, at the beginning of, of where things start for The Legend of the Ten Rings. This flashback sequence showing the history of Wen Wu and the Ten Rings. And this just gives us our, our first of many opportunities to talk about how extraordinary Tony Leung is in this movie. I was blown away by this performance. And you know going into it that he's a legend. Kevin Feige said as much when they introduced him as part of the cast. I mean, he wasn't there, but when they announced him as part of the cast back at San Diego Comic-Con in 2019... And you know you're in for something really special with this performance. But um, as we will, I'll, I'll point out the examples that ultimately drove me to this conclusion. But it started right here in what I think is one of the best performances in the history of the MCU. Agreed. I every, Everybody who's watched Tony Leung um, before this film knew that they were, he was going to be a highlight. Um his ability to emote mm -hmm. in small spaces is really unparalleled. I, I think there's, there's this whole YouTube thing and, and forgive me, I don't know who it's from, but you can look it up um, that goes into detail about Tony's ability to act purely with his eyes. Mm -hmm. And I think we see a lot of that in this film. Uh, he really is a master at just communicating unsaid, unspoken emotion and that was really critical for this film because mm -hmm. there's a lot of action, of course. There's a lot of humor, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but the emotional weight really rests on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I thought he just did an incredible job. And I think he does what I think this might be the perfection of the sympathetic villain angle, if I've ever seen it. Although it's it's not even quite that. I mean, you're not really supposed to agree with anything that Wen Wu is doing but you understand it and you still find a way to have some empathy and some compassion for him because of course you, you understand that a lot of what he's doing towards the very end of the film, he is completely misguided and there's a force that's actually doing that. So um, it, it's not that he is entirely of sound mind as he's making these decisions, but um, you know that there's of course, before that though, there was almost a thousand years of somebody who was just trying to gain power and I feel like what's missing, though, is, I mean, that the whole endless acquisition of power for this character is really driving at, you know, filling a void that, you know, no amount of power was ever going to be able to to fill. He can conquer the world, but there's still, you know, an emptiness in, in poor Wen Wu's heart uh, that was filled by Lee in um, a, a really, and speaking of tremendous performances, uh, this will just be part of the, you know, the chorus of this song that we'll sing throughout the spoiler review is the outstanding performances. And, and Fala Chen is, is the next one that we get to talk about. 
And because when you have somebody who is a known legend like Tony Leung, it's a credit to all the actors in this movie to, I'm sure, like, on the day, on set, they're like, oh, crap. <laughs> but, like, it doesn't show in their performances. They're all there, right there with them, step for step, and, and pretty much literally in this first fight sequence that we get in the movie. And it is a great illustration of, of something that is done. I mean, the fight sequences are all very different from one sequence to the next, which is something that I really appreciated. And it felt like different genres, even with or in different subgenres, even within the context of martial arts films. And I wouldn't say that this is, strictly speaking, a martial arts movie, but it does pull from different as- different genres and subgenres within that. And a lot of people have compared this more to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I think that's a fair comparison, but also this is just its own thing. And this is a scene that is, uh, sure, it's combat, but it's also two people developing an attraction to each other and starting to fall in love with one another, which, yeah, you know, kind of a weird context for that to happen. But this is magical, mythical, heightened realities that we're dealing with. I don't recommend a fistfight as a means of falling in love. But in this context, uh, in this uh, in this very surreal sort of setting, um, it works very well because of the performances here, but also I think what strikes Wen Wu in this moment is for the first time in who knows how many, you know, hundreds of years has he come across someone who is not afraid of him, someone who is not intimidated. And there might be there's probably something that's very refreshing about that for the character, because if he's been known as a conqueror, as a warrior king all over the world to finally come across someone who's like, I don't care about any of that pretense. Let's just see what you got, chump. Uh, And that's what. Uh, And that's what Lee gives him. But then also, I mean, we're doing other things within the mechanics of the storytelling, establishing how the rings can be manipulated and how they are very powerful, but not all powerful. And there's other magic uh, that's out there. Uh, But this was just such a great uh, fight scene that was that sold the impact of, you know, the fighting that was going on, but also tons of beauty and grace uh, with it as well. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think that last part you mentioned, the beauty and grace plays a big role to me, the fight scene was really more of a dance and Mm -hmm. it was i think intentionally choreographed and filmed to be like a dance and for those who may not know like dance is one of the best foundations for great martial artists you know bruce lee was a cha-cha uh champion before he really came to america and then back to hong kong to make movies um michelle yo which who i know we'll talk about uh, has was, was trained in ballet before she went into martial arts. And so the, the foundation of that is really critical for martial arts. And I thought they really communicated that well. Uh, and it really was beautiful. And yes, Crouching Tiger is a big influence on this film. And, you know, I had a chance to talk to Fala Chen and she, she specifically mentioned Crouching Tiger and other wuxia films. But to me, I the way House of the Flying Daggers uses just um, colors and, and also hero, the way they use sound and, and all that, the environment, I thought very much uh, influenced the, the way this scene was. Totally. And, you know, there's, you mentioned the, you know, the dancing comparison and I think that holds up in some ways that are obvious and maybe not so obvious. I mean, there's so many spins. This is like a ballroom dance. So (laughs) in the ways they're twirling each other around uh, a little bit, but it was just a a wonderful, wonderful sequence that was part of opening it. And it, it just added, some charm to it. You know, you're selling, you know, the, the, the power of this and the legend of the Ten Rings and Wen Wu, the warrior king. But then it ends with this humbling scene that also is this, you know, this fight between a conqueror 
and a woman who is defending her mystical, you know, village and, and, and realm. And it ends with, yeah, and that's how I met your father. And so, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it almost feels like a cheap little bit, but the reason you use that is because it totally works. And it was put in, in just the right place in this, you know, transition. And of course we get, you know, it, it's, they do such a great job of mixing in these flashbacks with these family moments. I mean, if you think about Fala Chen as Lee, she's not getting like a ton of screen time in this because she's not part of the present day story. And yet her presence is felt throughout because of how well it's established in these little scenes to show the foundation of these relationships, her relationships as a mother to her children. And of course, as a wife to her husband. And, you know, it's, it's the movie doing a great job with the writing and the direction, but also the performance that takes a lot for an actor to really get so much more yield out of it than, you know, what the screen time would ordinarily allow. And that's, that's the, the actor's ability on Fala Chen's part to connect with us as the audience. So that that way, like, that's why we feel the connection right away that these characters feel we don't have to spend that much time with them because in the moments that we do get, um, it feels great. And then we relate to the characters because, we get to we don't get to spend as much time with Fala Chen as we would want in this movie, and, and of course, tragically, neither do they. That's right, and I I think it also speaks to the chemistry between Tony and Fala. You really yes. believe that this warrior king who's mm-hmm. just ravaging the lands and is you know bloodthirsty and power hungry, you really believe that they fall in so much love. This it's a special, unique, magical love mm-hmm. that. He'll give it all up. Like I, I feel like w- with a lesser performance and lesser chemistry, it's almost hard to swallow. Like really, you're, you know, we're just <laughs> yeah. getting from there point A to point B. Right. But in this case, the point A to point B is really beautifully done, and I, that really sells it. Is the chemistry between the two? Yeah, my favorite sweet little moment is where he's kind of setting up some pose, and she's kind of talking him through it, and he's doing it wrong, and she just gives the little no, no, no. And, you know, she's not looking at him, so or he's not looking at her, so she just kind of smiles at that. She's correcting him and teaching him, but she's also charmed by just how imperfect he is. Um, and maybe that, you know, this is a part of him that only she gets to see, because obviously the rest of the world hasn't been seeing that while he's been out conquering it. So in moving to the present day, we are in San Francisco, so not just the land of Pimtech anymore, another Marvel, another Marvel superhero our MCU hero resides in San Francisco and we first meet Sean, not Shang, <laughs> Sean, <laughs> which uh, different spelling, but Hey, as a Sean, I'll take it. Uh, and Katie as played so, so well by Aquafina. Um, and yes, Simu Lu as Sean, AKA Shang Chi. Um, I'll favor Sean, but no, no, Shang Chi is awesome. So uh, we, we meet them for the first time here and it's a very, you know, classic little bait and switch. Although I think if you watch the trailers, you already knew what was happening, where the car pulls. I mean, we see the initial waking up to the alarm, working out, looking good with a shirt off, obviously. Um, and then moving over to the car pulls up and the guy gets out. No, it's it's not our hero. Our hero is the one who's got to park that car or or so he would have uh, were it not for Katie <laughs> grabbing those keys uh, and taking them on this joyride. But between that sequence and then them telling the story of their friendship to their other two friends at, at the dinner with the whole Hotel California story. Uh, thought another great job of, of establishing these relationships and, and everything that was going on 
between uh, between these two characters and the friendship between Shang uh, between Shang Chi and Katie. Because I, I think there's always the the risk that when stuff like this happens, you're gonna run the risk of not necessarily sticking with the platonic relationship and giving into the temptation to make it romantic. And outside of Katie, you know, doing the obvious thing and admiring uh, Shang with his shirt off the first time she sees him. Other than that, this is pretty much, you know, a, a friendship. But it, it's a strong bond between these two characters that I think really kicks into gear for me, no pun intended, right after the bus sequence. But just this initial meeting between these two characters, you just like them. And so you don't even know exactly what adventure they're about to go on. But whatever it is, you're you're already ready for it and you're already with them. Yeah, I, when Aquafina was announced, I have to admit, I was a little bit hesitant mm-hmm. about how that would be executed. Not that I'm not a fan of hers. She does, you know, I think she does what she does really well. Mm-hmm. And But having said that, I don't, I, I was skeptical about the range, about what she could deliver and how that would play in a Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, you know, story. And, you know, on one hand, she is who she is, too. Like she brings that element to the MCU, but it's very right. welcome. You know, and I thought she did a great job in doing it and really set the tone for the humor that is very pervasive in the story, which I very much welcomed. Um, going back into to the our previous point, like chemistry again, like Simu and Aquafina have great chemistry. They You really feel they're two, you know, just friends hanging out in San Francisco, having yep. a good time. Um, probably ignoring their responsibilities, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, not doing what they should be doing as adults, but that's part of the story. And they really sold that really well. Um, you know, so look, uh, just so that we're not hundred percent going all the time, there are elements where like they hit us over the head. Like I, I, we've been friends for 10 years, right. you know, they really have to like hit us over the head with that. I think it could have been a little bit more subtle because we see the, the bond between them. Right. And I will say me, when I watch the film, I felt there was a romantic connection there. Now we've subsequently heard in press conferences and such that it was intended to be ambiguous or platonic, which yeah. is fine. I totally support that too. But uh, I kind of, you know, I, I would have been in favor of a romantic relationship. I think I can see there were the moments. I mean, obviously the, the attraction, I mean, if a romantic relationship were to ultimately evolve from what we see in this, I, I wouldn't say it wouldn't be shocking. It wouldn't necessarily feel out of place. But I also just like that they can put forth this idea that these two characters are just very, very, very close friends. And and maybe they become something other than that. But the friendship that we had here, I mean, it is a very intimate friendship. Like they are much more cuddly with each other than I am with any of my friends. But uh, at the same time, like I I also understand that because these are these are two people who really had to rely on one another And, and especially um, from Shang's direction, because if you're looking at where, uh, you know, where he came from, just being completely on his own by himself, like for the last 10 years, <laughs> as they emphasize to us, which I mean, I felt like, OK, they're trying to like let us know where the where things are in a timeline and and all of that and certainly suggests that neither one of these characters were were blipped, uh, that they got to count all of those years. Um, maybe there's some value in that. But for this uh, decade, uh, this is has been it for Shang-Chi. This is it. There, there hasn't been 
any other family. I mean, it's been by extension, the rest of Katie's family, but what is that for him? You know, that's eating their food uh, <laughs> when he stops by. And I'm sure maybe some other gatherings and stuff like that. But for the most part, uh, Katie is like the central hub of, of what he can consider his family um, at this point in his life. And um, as we move on to, you know, of course, we, we do get that great scene, though, when he visits uh, Katie's family and, you know, with the, the grandmother who was, you know, preparing things for her departed husband for Day of the Dead, um, I, I thought was uh, that I absolutely loved. And then, I mean, well, but she did what, you know, I think the audience maybe would be doing of like, oh, when are you two getting married? <laughs> and, uh, that was an amazing reaction to that of just like the way she just brushes him off, like, okay, okay. Um, I, I loved that whole sequence. And then, you know, setting up. Oh, also, as he's walking in, though, I saw that uh, you noticed. I don't know if you noticed this, but there was a blip anxiety poster or something for people who are dealing with stress of the blip. So um, which, you know, we know that like all of Earth, that was, you know, San Francisco was heavily hit based on the memorial that we saw Scott Lang walking through in Avengers Endgame. So all those people coming back. And I like that there is that. I mean, in, even in the dinner with friends, you know, you have a character who's acknowledging like, we live in a world where half of us can just go away in an instant. And I just, I, none of that is like centrally important or, or vital to this story because it's not really about that. But just acknowledging that this is still part of life in the MCU. Um, and, it's, and it's a very subtle kind of smaller way to do that, which I think is where Marvel does a great job of finding the right balance. So I, I appreciated that and I got a kick out of the flyers. But then when we get onto the bus itself, and uh, I mean, I, I love the bit about writing a research paper on a bus, and that's the daughter my mom wishes came out of her vagina, was a hilarious <laughs> line uh, delivered uh, with expert precision by Aquafina. And um, I, I will say, though, for Aquafina, I wasn't really surprised by her performance in this because I think if anyone is a fan of... Uh, Nora from Queens, uh, her show on Comedy Central, she is hilarious and she is all the things that most people expect from Aquafina. But there is a very tender and sensitive side to that show and her performances in that show that um, that I've always been delighted by in watching it and was just hoping like I hope they bring some of that into uh, into her character so it can be a multidimensional performance. And, and thankfully it was. But the bus sequence where, of course, Shang-Chi is wearing the jade pendant that his mother gave him. Somebody wants it. That's a no-go. But uh, I, I also really like that Shang-Chi was trying everything he could to de-escalate the situation. It almost reminded me of um, Natasha's comment about Bruce, of the guy so desperate to avoid a fight because he knows he'll win. You don't really see... It's not what Shang-Chi is struggling with in that moment. It's not... Am I going to be able to handle this? It's I don't want to get into this space. I don't want to have a violent interaction with anybody. If there's anything I can do to de-escalate, but when the guy face palms Katie's head into the bus window, it's on. And it's look, it's cool as hell when he throws that first punch and the audience cheers and they re and you know and they react to it in a big big way and they totally should because it's totally awesome. But what also impresses me about that moment is the conflict that you can see on Simu's face as Shang-Chi 
that he did everything he could to avoid this, but he had to do it. And it's not like, hell yeah, I just punched a guy who deserved it. There's a, there's a piece of that of, you know, just feeling the absorbing the intensity of the moment, but also a guy who just doesn't want to be in this space. And it took a lot for him to throw that punch for all the reasons that we'll learn later. Yeah. My, I love the, the bus fight. It's one of my favorite fights. It might be my favorite fight of the whole film, even though we saw a good portion of it in the, the trailers and, mm-hmm. the, and the spots. I, if you haven't watched it yet, you still haven't seen everything about that fight. No. It's like such an excellent sequence. If I go back up slightly before I get there, um, because I did want to mention, you made some great points about like the subtleties of the MCU that they throw in there. And going to your point about the ambition, I think what makes Shang-Chi so special is that not only are they throwing in all these hints and um, subtleties about the MCU and where it stands, but then they're also sprinkling it, sprinkling in all these cultural elements, right? Like mm-hmm. everything you talked about in that scene where he goes to see um, Katie's, you know, family, you know, you, you mentioned so many nuances and then we didn't even get into like, they zoom in on the fact that Sean, oh, yeah. or Sean takes off his shoes before he goes in. Right. And, and then they go and sit down and every single Asian, uh, you know, grandmother or mother has at one point said, if they see somebody of the opposite sex or sometimes same, same sex, they'll say like, when are you guys getting married? Like what's, what's going on? They're not shy about that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. It's very culturally authentic. um, And I love that. But at the same time, they're eating like an American cereal while they're speaking Chinese. And then, but then they'll like answer in English. Like those, those types of small nuances are really important culturally Mm -hmm. um, for the Asian American community. Cause we, we feel that we live it. So it, it, it speaks to the authenticity of this film that you don't have to get, you you can easily just be like, like, take it or leave it. But for those of us who lived it, we're like, oh, man, we feel seen and we feel our stories being told here in a way that's never been told in the MCU. Um, going to back, fast forward to the bus scene, you know, I love it because everything you said is true. Also, like he has to hide, right? Like he's in hiding, mm-hmm. so he doesn't want to show off his skills. And we're all eagerly anticipating that um, the whole sequence is a side scrolling. So it's very reminiscent of old boy. And I'm pretty sure that um, Korean film action film inspired this scene and um then you get some jacket foo as well he 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 fights with his jacket and right. you know very jackie chan absolutely and, um so those are the things that really oh man i love that i love that scene so much and um the last thing i'll mention is is, is razor fist florian he's such a huge dude he is perfectly cast in this role because just for that scene because right. he takes up so much space and it makes it gives you that um claustrophobic feel in that fight which is just perfect yeah, and I mean, it sets up a great bit with, you know, uh, Clev, who's like live streaming the fight and, and grading it because he's, you know, got some martial arts background. Uh, so he's he's qualified to judge that for everybody. Um, I love that so much. Yeah. And, and hey, we saw him asking Spider-Man to do a flip back in uh, back in Homecoming. And so, uh, yeah, I, I love that. But I mean, that was a great moment. When he's like, you got this, bro. And he's like, my bad. When uh, Razor Fist actually shows how he got the name. Yeah, I loved all of that, and I'm glad you called out the different um, the different cinematic influences that are part of this old boy, and also Jackie Chan, and you know it's Simu Liu and the the stunt team that were. Ju- I, I feel like the bus scene is just kind of showing off. Like it is, I think they did it. They executed that action sequence as well as anyone could. It is. I think it is my favorite. I don't know about favorite fight because it's more than just a fight. It's just it is because it's not just punching and kicking and, and all of that. Like it is saving people. 
It is trying to steer the bus. It is, and, and of course, before Katie takes over as a driver, Shang-Chi uh, has to take over for a moment. And it's all these different elements. Like, how does he get from where he's at in the middle of the bus all the way to the driver's seat? Well, they're very Jackie Chan in how he does that. And they don't hide that. Like, that is paying homage to Jackie Chan and and all of that. There, there's no question about that. And, and I love that they were, you know, that they... They didn't try to hide that, that they were very happy to celebrate, you know, those who came before and, and helped build to uh, a moment like this uh, as massive and high profile as things get, which is as high profile as things get anywhere when you're talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And yet yeah, that sequence, I thought, was so inventive and it was all about storytelling. Like you can make the coolest looking thing and there's a lot of cool looking things in this a- this uh, action sequence, which would be pointless for me to describe in an audio podcast, so I'll I'll leave the play by play to just going back and watching the movie. But when you're looking at the different things that are happening, like all of the fighting is great, but then they get really inventive by creating all these. There's just different levels to it. It's almost it, it almost feels like a video game boss fight, but a more this one's more complex than it usually is this early in the game. If we were to compare this to a video game where there's so many different stages of things that have to happen and that Shang-Chi has to be aware of as it's all going on. But then just seeing him clock all of these different things to where he's coming up with the plan of, of how he's ultimately going to separate one half of the bus from the other and telling Katie to wait for a signal and she has no idea what it is. Well, what other signal would it be than pulling uh, the stop cable? So like... All of that was so inventive and so much fun, so well thought out, and then ultimately constructed, uh, choreographed, and, and executed for the scene. And then, of course, you know, editing, uh, of course, is where you're really going to do this. Uh, it's just, it is such a, a well-done sequence. Um, I mean, there's a lot of achievements within this movie, um, but this is one of, I think, the most significant ones. And, and I don't... That's not faint praise. I think sometimes people look at praise of an action sequence and they go, eh, it's just an action sequence. No, no, no. It's just an action sequence if it's not great. Um, but when it is great, that's something really special, especially when you're still telling story and you're still developing characters. And we see throughout this scene what Shang-Chi cares about. And he cares about helping people and protecting people more so than anything else. He's, th- he's there to keep people safe a lot more than he is to punch anyone in the face. Totally agree. And I love that the, we've seen this in the trailers, but I love the scene where, you know, like the bus is careening and he has to like grab one passenger by like the jacket uh-huh. and then like stick his leg out to, yep. to keep the other one from falling. Again, very Jackie Chan. But I, I thought you hit it on the head. It really establishes early on that he's not intended, he's not interested in necessarily having a big ego and having the bravado. It's really, he's trying to save people and help people. Absolutely. So, one uh, follow up to that scene is, you know, the immediate aftermath of Katie is understandably like, what the hell? Uh, who are you? Because she's known him for 10 years uh, as they make sure we don't miss. And uh, this sort of thing has never come up. And it's funny, though, when you pair this to how they first met, which was somebody trying to uh, pick a fight with Sean. And, you know, that she made sure that fight didn't happen, didn't have uh, that sort of luck in uh, de-escalating it. Should have gone with Hotel California on the bus and, and maybe things would have worked out differently. But we have this fight and she sees what her friend Sean is capable of. 
And that is uh, where I think is, is one of my favorite and I think the winning moments for Aquafina's performance is when they have that reaction in that conversation. Just the whole thing of like, you can explain it on the plane. And then when he's trying to say like, because they're going to go to Macau and he's like, you know, acting like that's not going to happen. And she just shouts over him. You can explain it on the plane, Sean. And doesn't even wait for any rebuttal. Slams the door. Gone. Uh, love the, of course, the, the blocking in that scene, all of that, but Aquafina's performance in that, because it comes from a place of, there is the comedic element of, I, I, I didn't know any, I didn't know this about you, and now I'm amazed by this new information, but you felt more like there was concern about it, as opposed to just being in awe of what he did, because that's a recognition, I think, in uh, Katie being very intuitive and, and knowing her friend that you know, knowing that this is not okay, like what's happening here, as incredible as it might have been, like is totally not okay, and, and my friend's in trouble, and whether he likes it or not, I'm here to help him, so th- that moment I thought was key for her character. Yeah, that's a really good point, I, I like how you frame that, I mean, the way I view Katie as a character is that she's the point of view, entry point for Asian Americans, mm-hmm. you know, she's the one who they established, she whatever, graduated from Berkeley, and isn't doing anything with her degree at all and right. is a disappointment to her family. And so it, it, her perspective and that experience, suddenly she's faced, a lot of Asian Americans, shocking, don't do martial arts. You know, a lot of us uh, <laughs> right. didn't want to do follow in those footsteps, even though maybe our parents wanted to. And so I think she fits that profile. And so now her one of her best friends, who she thought she knew, turns out to be this like ridiculous fighter. And it would be just her response to it is is great but like you said and actually that's why i don't think they needed that like we've been friends for 10 years because her performance and the way she responds to like we're going like right i'm going with you explain it. that was enough to to me to establish that relationship i totally agree with that so in moving forward to macau i mean i feel like we're just you know spoiled with one spectacular sequence after another but before we even get to, you know, the big scaffolding action sequence of, of that, just our introduction to um, to John John as played by Ronnie Chang, such a fun character in this, um, you know, his whole thing. I speak ABC, um, I, I thought was great. And, and then like my although my favorite moment from him was like him flipping the bird to as they were going out the as him and Xiling were going out the back door. Uh, flipping the bird as they're leaving Shang-Chi and, and Katie behind. Um, but yes, John uh, John was was such a fun character. And there's some really good little MCU Easter eggs in this. Not like the obvious stuff, because it doesn't count as an Easter egg. It's way too big, literally. Like Abomination and Wong in their fight. But you have one of the widows from the Red Room fighting an extremist-infected uh, soldier in one of the you know the low level fights that John John's not concerned about, um, so you know, taking these things that were major components in the MCU and like this shows the you know the level of this fight ring is that this stuff is just the side action, um, but uh, you know and then of course we get to our introduction um, to Zhai Ling as played by Munger Zhan. And wow, I mean, just here we go again. Unbelievable performance. Such a great introduction to this character. Um, but even before that meeting, uh, I was very curious what they would do with the Abomination and Wong fight to look at the you know, broader aspects of the MCU that are kind of you know, coming into this. And first off, I love the ending to the fight. Wong making Abomination punch himself to win the fight was great. 
but also the curiosity of like, oh, did Abomination just like escape during the blip? And is that why um, he's able to do this? It doesn't appear so. Like he goes willingly with Wong and I can't, I, I've seen the movie a few times and I'm trying to make out exactly where they go, but it almost looks like there's a cell there that's uh, not entirely dissimilar to like the cell that uh, was intended for the Hulk aboard the helicarrier in the first Avengers movie that, uh, you know, Wong may may take him out for like work release to go in a fight ring. I don't know how that works, um, but uh, Abomination still seems to be held captive for most of his day, which I thought was interesting. And then, of course, the fight was just cool. Yeah, definitely. And like you mentioned, the Black Widow or the Widow, I guess, I don't know, is she called Black Widow or a Widow who's in the uh, in the side fight? Um, she's played by Jay Chu, who was obviously in Black Widow. Mm-hmm. She's a Wushu champion. Uh, it was really cool to see her and, you know, see a little bit more mileage because as we saw in Black Widow, uh, we saw a very diverse group of widows, but, you know, they didn't get to do a whole lot. And so it's really cool that we get like the Asian widow who we did see right. um, transported here, which is really cool. I love Ronnie Chang. Uh, he, I wish he got to do more. And, you know, I'm again, we'll get there, but maybe there is some capacity for him to do more going forward. And I think totally. that's awesome. Um, but again, another authentic ta- uh, kind of bit of storytelling with him speaking Chinese. They're in Macau. And so, again, Katie, number one, is going to be most intimidated. You know, when an Asian American goes to, quote unquote, their home country, but aren't necessarily comfortable. Like, I'm, I'm Korean American. My first time in Korea, my Korean level is like third grade level. You know, I mm-hmm. speak like a kid. And so there's a lot of anxiety that comes with going to this country where everybody knows you're not from there because you look American by the way you dress and carry yourself. But at the same time, they still expect like, why don't you, why can't you speak like we speak? Why can't you do, why don't you know all of this? And so when Ronnie just switches to the, Oh, no problem. I speak ABC. It's like such a fun, but also anxiety releasing moment, Mm -hmm. which I, uh, which I thought was special, but yeah, awesome fight abomination and Wong. And finally, look, Wong gets to do something cool, which has been sorely lacking uh, over the last few films that I've been really annoyed about. So I was, very happy about that. Yeah, he didn't just bail in this one. I mean, <laughs> that's right. A, a little bit. Someone least, else was guarding. Yeah, the sanctum. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, at least I mean, he helped somebody knock themselves out first before he uh, before he bailed. I do wish, though, and, and this was my my call out when we got the second trailer and we got the abomination reveal. I I do wish that they had saved this for the movie. Just a, a quick marketing nitpick, and then I swear I'll be done. Because like. I feel like if you recognize the abomination, especially like a modified abomination from the Incredible Hulk, you are an MCU lifer as a fan. And so I don't know that the presence of abomination in a trailer sells any tickets to anyone who wasn't already buying. Meanwhile, you have a surprise that would have just been great, like right smack dab in the middle of this movie that, you know, you know, ahead of time. But at the same time, like, look, I guess, admittedly, this is a nitpick. Abomination is not the star here. It doesn't matter that there's a cameo from a monster from the Incredible Hulk. This is not his story. This is not about the broader MCU. There are little pieces of it, but this is about a story uh, centered on some brand new characters. And one of those brand new characters being Jai Ling, who I... I I didn't know how much we were going to get from this character. And I didn't even really start to have an idea that that this character would have a major role in this movie until like months ago 
when the Marvel Legends figures came out from Hasbro of like, oh, she got an action figure. Like, okay. Because um, you knew like, okay, well, because like she wasn't necessarily emphasizing casting announcements and stuff like that uh, compared to, of co- obviously, Simu Liu, Aquafina, Tony Leung, that these were obviously going to be the stars of this. And I, I wasn't sure what the size of her role was going to be, but it's beyond significant in this film. And I think that uh, Munger Zhang is the, I think she's the breakout star of, of this movie because everybody else, I mean, Simu Liu as well, but those of us who've watched Kim's Convenience or just, you know, followed the guy and seen how charismatic he is on, on social media, like there were, some of these were just more known commodities, I, I think, to a lot of us than uh, than she was. And so I think seeing this breakout performance as as Jai Ling to the point where when you get to the post credit scene, you're not like, it doesn't feel out of place. You're not like, well, why is she getting that attention? You're like, yes, <laughs> like I am so glad that as significant as her role was in this film, it feels like things are only going to get bigger for Jai Ling as the story goes on. Yeah, they did such an incredible job, again, with the casting, you know, Shasta Seraphin casting. They ne- they rarely miss. And yeah, like Munger is like an unknown, right? She has a theater background, but this is her biggest um project to date and gosh how is she going to top this i don't know but um we who could know what to expect Mm -hmm. going into this film watching her but i think in many ways it was so critical that not only was katie elevated to be an important character that um shaolin was also because it really fills out this world the thing that makes shang chi so important is that it's not just giving you one token asian character in the mcu it's not like here's your shang chi enjoy it, you know, right. and basically be happy with what you get, right? We have this whole world that they've built out with a whole mythology and a background, and Shaoling and Katie are important parts of that and are going to move forward as important parts of the MCU right. so that we're, we're getting more diversity as a whole. To me, that's what made Black Panther so special, yes. um, is that it's not just here's T'Challa, it's really they built out Wakanda. Um, Letitia Wright was the breakout, you know, arguably in that, but you also get M'Baku, you know, Wakabi is still, is still, you know, we're interested, like what's going to happen with him. And then obviously Nakia and Okoye, like you have all these characters that you're like, Oh my gosh, it's not just one film. What one character in this film, you're getting a whole world with supporting characters. And Shang-Chi did, did that um, pretty well. Also. Totally. I think it was very similar to black Panther in that respect where yes, the movie is named after one character, but the ensemble really gets a chance to shine. And, and I think that's very important if you're talking about something, if you're trying to be have a more inclusive franchise, if you're trying to have better representation within the franchise and be a better reflection of the audience that watches these films, you can't just say, well, here's your one person who's meant to represent this group. You know, there's, it gives the audience an opportunity to connect with whomever it is they're going to connect with, whoever's story they might relate to in, in a way that might be stronger for them than it is for another character. Like you can walk out of this movie being like, yeah, Shang-Chi was fine, but like Shai Ling was like awesome. So like, that's my favorite. And th- you know what? That's a perfectly valid choice for uh, a favorite character coming out of this movie. And then uh, what I also really liked about this character, they did a really good job of showing kind of the backstory and, and her, her experience, both she and Shang-Chi, of course they lost their mother we haven't learned why yet at this point in the movie. We, of course, reasonably suspect it's not good. Um, but then we we see what the hurt is, you know, 
where she feels, how she feels about Shang-Chi, that this was a little sister whose big brother left her all alone in this terrible environment <laughs> for the Ten Rings um, and, and everything that they endured there. Uh, not the best place to grow up and an even worse place to grow up alone for Shai Ling. Um, so you can certainly understand, you know, her feeling, um, yeah, a bit sour about the whole, you know, broken three days promise uh, from Shang-Chi, who admittedly was like 14. So, I mean, you can't really hold it against him, but she can for a moment. And it's fair. Um, can you? I think you can. Yeah. I think that's the, well, yeah, that's hey, where like, I'm like, oh man, that's rough. Well, you know, not to. Yeah, go, you, go ahead. you said. Well, no, you look. It's it's fair to settle that with a kick to the face. I'll I'll put it that way. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It, exactly. It's fair to to her, her anger is justified. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's good, right? It's it's it makes Shang Chi the hero, the person we just described. We're introduced as him wanting to save people and all that, but it makes him complicated because yeah, mm-hmm. he is flawed. Like, um, we know he's not just whatever the perfect hero, and he's somebody who frankly did abandon his his sister yeah. and. It's not like he didn't know things are, aren't going to be good back there. Right. You know, that right. If he abandons her, that it's not one of the things like, ah, she'll be fine. Look, it's bad. And he just chose to ignore that and deny that element of his life for whatever, mm-hmm. however many years, 10 years. And there's a, there's a, there are consequences to that that maybe even we'll see more of after this film. I definitely based on the, uh, based on the post credit scene. Cause, um, Shang-Chi was, was not, alerted to what exactly it was Xiling is uh, is doing in that. But um, one of the other moments that I, I really liked about this that that started off something that I thought was very special with this character of, of Xiling was how she interacted with Katie and how that was a representation of what she experienced growing up with Wenwu as a father and, and growing up around the Ten Rings, where you know, she grew up where, you know, even if she kind of points out to Katie later on in the movie that there's a survival strategy to this, just like, shut up, just don't be, stay out of the way, don't be heard, don't be, don't speak up, and they'll just forget you're there. And she immediately makes Katie know that she's there, because not that Katie has like a ton to offer to this conversation with this family history, but Jailene will just throw out, just throw out, I like your pants. And, you know, it's such a small thing but she doesn't have to pay any attention to Katie, let alone give her a compliment. And yet she does. And, you know, it sets up, I think, her saving her uh, moments away from this uh, in during the scaffold fight. And then just the way she is, she bonds with Katie and she's very protective of Katie um, in a way that I, I, I thought I found to be very, very sweet for that character. And that's where I think Shai Ling is such a fascinating character is obviously there are things about this character. It's, it's the moral ambiguity of this character in that, yeah, I, I'm sure she has done and will do some things that many of us would disagree with and label bad. But there is also, you know, it's that classic sort of anti-hero thing of like, they do a lot of bad stuff, but they got a code. Uh, and as long as you have a code, you're okay by me. And uh, Shai Ling does have a code um, that I think she operates by. And I, I think we see that in the way that she treats Katie, that was one of my favorite aspects of of the film, but also favorite aspects uh, specifically of Xi Ling as a character. But then we get, you know, of course, the the scaffold fight. And, you know, uh, Shang-Chi has taken the bait. It wasn't his sister who sent him the postcard. The father knew where his kids were the entire time, just wanted to get him in the same place for a family reunion. But before we get to that, the scaffold fight sequence 
we're in a completely different martial arts space here than we were on the bus, but it is no no less thrilling, no less inventive, and just the way the stakes of this fight sequence of, you know, of course, the idea of not letting anybody get away with a pendant, but also let's try to not have any of us die in this moment. And the whole thing with Katie, I thought was done really, really well. The danger of that from the initial, you know, as uh, the, the bamboo pole is like starting to bend and then you see the tethers start to snap and then you start to see the actual bamboo start to break and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then the catch by Shang-Chi, but then the drop because he gets electrocuted to the final save by Xiaoling, just the different steps to that, to the point where I was like, I mean, there's a, a half second there where Katie is falling after Shang-Chi drops her that I'm just like, wait a minute, is there another moment from the trailers that I know she's in? Because I'm like, holy crap, I, <laughs> she might be going here uh, before Xiaoling makes the, makes the save. But everything about this scaffold fight sequence is just so cool. Agreed. It, it, there was a moment where you're like, that looks real bad. How yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. How is, how is Shang-Chi going to make up for this? It's just a moment, of, and that's... It's like if you objectively look back, you're probably like, ah, of course she wasn't going to die there. But they did a perfect job of making you just question for a second before the before the save, which is just excellent storytelling. Beautiful, beautiful fight scene. I mean, we've all seen again in the trailers like the neon backdrop mm-hmm. and just all the just the way they do that. It it was just jaw dropping. Um, Simu, who of course is like quite a strong athlete. And um, he doesn't have like one martial arts that I think is his thing, but actually I think his biggest thing is parkour. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's re- has a really strong parkour background and they really utilize that well. Um, in general, they, the film used its talent really well, but I think that's a really good example. You see Simu do some incredible things that I don't know how many other MCU actors can pull off, you know, let alone, you know, uh, in any film. I mean, so it was it's awesome. just, yeah, it's only, uh, Simu and, and Tom Holland that I see doing flips on such a regular basis. Um, and yeah, I mean, Simu throwing out the first pitch of the Giants game the other night and doing a backflip on uneven ground on the mound. Like I would have stepped off the mound before I wouldn't have attempted it anywhere, <laughs> regardless of footing. Give yeah, me a trampoline. That's a high risk. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, high risk just in general, but then yeah, the uh, the risk of embarrassment in front of so many people. Um, <laughs> it, it's a bold move and I'm, I'm glad he pulled it off. Um, but the you know the the fight sequence of course on the scaffolding is great but then you get a brief uh wish it was longer because it was so awesome but the one-on-one fight between uh shang chi and the death dealer andy lee uh showing off some of the skills that that you saw live um just it was so cool and as you mentioned i mean the backdrop for it everything they did with with these sequences i mean the way they were staged just made everything look like a million bucks um, or a lot more than a million, but a lot more spe- expensive than a million bucks, 10 million bucks, whatever it is. These are Marvel movies. They're ridiculous. But um, yeah, they, they looked uh, just incredible. And, you know, we, this is where we catch up with Wen Wu in the present day. And when I talk about Tony Leung's performance, these are the types of moments that really stand out to me is that you have a father who has been, and we will see so cold so distant and and at times just frankly cruel. And then at, but when he turns on that warmth of a father who cares about his son, you know, uh, pull maybe to a lesser extent, his daughter doesn't do a great job of showing the bond uh, with his daughter, but that's made clear as a, as a criticism of what was happening. 
And so, you know, the way he pulls in, you know, uh, Shang's head to touch their foreheads. And then there is a warmth to, and we'll see it more, I, I think, in the dinner scene that comes up after this. But there is a genuine warmth, and it's very hard to sell that. I think as an actor, where all of your be- all of the behaviors of your character should be enough for an audience member to just write you off and say, "Screw this guy, totally a bad dude." No, there's no redeeming quality whatsoever. And, and yet, when when there is that tender side to to Wen Wu, I still completely buy it. Yeah, it was really well done. But of course, carried by Tony, we talked about the emotional weight that he carries, but. Um, I, I, the dichotomy that you reference, I think is a major theme, right? Like Shaolin is his daughter, but obviously as we learn was ignored and overlooked by, by her father. And this story very much has that idea of upending the patriarchy, which is very much a, a part of, especially East Asian traditional cultures that we all face, you know, um, it, that, again, very authentic that in a lot of traditionally East Asian families, the the boys and the men are honored and respected while the women are overlooked. And so I'm, I wasn't surprised at all to see that uh, very intentionally, um, whatever described relationship uh, differences between the two. And, I, and I'm glad that they, going back to your point about Shaoling and Katie, that that's really an important relationship mm-hmm. in in going towards that story and telling how, they're going to counteract the, the the idea of boys and men are more important and more valued. So I think they did a great job. And then, yes, I can't overlook the Death Dealer. Andy Lee is so awesome. Um, I assume all of your listeners already know about him by now, but go look him up, Marshall Club, on YouTube. Just jaw-dropping stuff that he can do. And it's all authentic. It's all self-taught. He says something like 90% of what he does is all self-taught from martial arts movies that he watched growing up, which I think is just insane. Yeah. But – he does so many cool stuff, and that's just true authenticity that you can't fake. That's not editing. That's not you know clever uh, camera work. He's the real deal, and I totally agree with you. I wish it was longer, and I wish we got a little bit more of that uh, fight. And the, honestly, the kind of re- relationship between the two yes. to have been resolved. I agree. The death of the death dealer was one of the more underwhelming parts oh. of uh, of the movie for me, but we'll we'll get to it. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Um, but that sort of family reunion scene at uh, at the dinner um, was great, and, and we get another flashback. You know, it's it's Wen Wu describing how all the names that he went by. Um, there was one person who called him by his actual name of Wen Wu, and that and that was their mother. That was Lee, and just getting more of that relationship, the romance between the two of them, and how it was such a. It's just it's so domestic like it's so blissfully domestic and how mundane like a lot of it is it's not like the most extravagant royal palace type of family or or anything like that like it's just playing like the at-home version of dance dance revolution (laughs) and like just i mean most of what they're doing is you know what what any family could do of like everybody's cuddled up on the couch like watching movies and then playing video games together or whatever it is that you know, for somebody who lived, you know, 10 lifetimes, that these were the moments that were the most satisfying to him, that were the most memorable. And it's because of the connection that he was feeling in that, which is, you know, conquer as many places as you want, but that's not going to give you the same feeling that he was experiencing, 
just feeling truly whole as having and, and being part of a family. And, you know, it, it's it's amazing to see. And I think that's where you, as you're trying to find some sort of path, you know, the in uh, as an audience member to a character of, of what redeems them. Yeah, he's got horrible ways about going about his business, but there there is a part of him that, that he does feel it was the most valuable part of his life that a lot of people could certainly relate to. Yeah, I mean, this this part of the film is arguably the most important part of the story because it establishes that the primary villain, which we all know is coming, we all know who this is, the Mandarin and the very problematic history that the character has mm -hmm. in comics and, and pop culture, this is the moment they handle that. And they give Wenwu as a character more layers than you expected. You would have been fine just expecting Wenwu to be the, the Conqueror King and he's mm -hmm. angry and he's like the criminal underground lord and, and he wants Shang-Chi to be, take over. That's, just, that's enough of the story. And in many stories, including, frankly, a lot of Marvel uh, villains, that's it. That's all you mm -hmm. get. And then Shang-Chi has to fight him and that's the end. But here, there's so many layers to the character that, like you said, it gives the audience the buy-in of like, oh... He is somebody who has a heart, or at least had one before it got right. ripped out. And um, he it, still it does. That's what's us. driving him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so we just buy in, and it's so critical. And I know we haven't even gone there yet. And then they deal with the the, the name of the Mandarin. They deal mm. with him talking with Katie, and what's your name? The value of names. Oh my gosh, there's so many layers here that just blew me away. The most important part of the film. Absolutely. I mean, when he asks her for her Chinese name and she says Ray Wen and he says, you know, names are sacred. That's what connects us to uh, those who came before. And so, you know, him calling that out and then but also I, I think it speaks to why it was so touching for him to have somebody who actually would call him by his name and, and that it was something where, you know, the pretense of the warrior king superseded anything else. Right. There, there was something about him. Granted, he's, you know, an immortal guy with 10 magical rings. So, yeah, th that could impact how people are able to find you relatable in life for sure. But um, certainly there was a part of him that was missing as far as being able to connect with someone just as a human being. And, you know, the name was an important part of that. And then, you know, speaking of names, yes, when he calls out the Mandarin and, you know, the Mandarin myth from Iron Man 3 and, and how it's the 10 rings being appropriated and then, of course, creating the, the creation of this character, one terrorist creating, you know, the idea of a terrorist. And as he says, you know, naming it after a, a chicken dish, naming it after everyone, you know, the, the entire, you know, United States of America terrified of an orange, um, which was exactly what it deserved, you know, as, as that sort of mocking attitude of it. Because it, you know, it took all of the stuff that, the Mandarin, you know, Trevor Slattery would say, and, you know, for everybody listening, I just did air, you know, air quotes, which Ron could see on Zoom, but like uh, mystical air quotes, could, not just yes. air quotes, mystical air quotes, mystical Magical. air quotes of, well, he was doing that, right? He was making fun of Western appropriation, you know, of, you know, Eastern ideas or iconography or mythology. And it's something he was mocking, but not obviously not meaning it. It's all a performance. Well, you know, when Wen Wu goes after it, he hits the point, you know, he hits the nail right on the head and he does so, you know, in a very succinct, you know, concise, but very, very effective uh, way that I just absolutely loved. And and ultimately, like what they're pointing out here, because I, I think, you know, 
it, it wasn't necessarily our fault as an audience for characterizing him as the real Mandarin. I mean, they even kind of leaned into that with some of the marketing and, and how the character was talked about because that was our most obvious point of reference. But the point of this scene is there is no real Mandarin. Uh, there is only Wen Wu. And not only that, but how absurd the idea right. of a villain named the Mandarin is, right? And that's the all, that's how beautifully layered the, the storytelling is, is that not only is Wen Wu mocking in universe in the MCU, like it, think about how stupid that is, like you said, uh, over a, a chicken dish or, or an orange. But then we have to apply that. He's talking to us as a society, yes, right? The Mandarin and Fu Manchu, of which in this story he's both in this weird way, right. is that they represent this yellow peril stereotype that pervaded, you know, U.S. pop culture, Western pop culture. I shouldn't just say U.S. because, you know, started in England, but uh, Western pop culture where Asian characters were viewed in very stereotypical, exaggerated ways. And they were going to come steal your woman and, and, you know, take and just take, take your stuff, take your riches. They were evil and all of this. And mm -hmm. that part was a huge part of Western pop culture stories. And if you step back and think like, how could you label a character called the Mandarin and think that that's actually scary or evil standing up against whatever Darth Vader or Dr right. Count Dracula, you've got the Mandarin. It's like so absurd, but that's how deep these kind of racial stereotypes run that you never even question, not you, but a lot, a lot of people just didn't question it. Just, sure. oh yeah, sure. That's scary. That's evil. And so Wenwu and the writers and storytellers are, are, poking holes at this like take a look at these stereotypes and what we've kind of accepted as just oh this is a fact when um you know if you do question it it helps us all realize there are layers to that absolutely this is something we can graduate from right that just because we've got Please. decades worth of comic books that have said this name doesn't mean we have to keep saying it it doesn't mean it has to keep being this way, you know, just because that's the way it was always done is not really a justification for doing anything. So I think that it was important to call that out and to have a more meta quality. And I thought Iron Man 3 had some of that to an extent of the whole idea that this is a guy who was created by a think tank of, of white men to say that this is what this is what the world will find scary is if we appropriate this sort of imagery and, and iconography. And so there was some of that in Iron Man 3, but this is to an even greater extent and putting a much finer point on it um, and said rather eloquently uh, by Wen Wu uh, as portrayed so brilliantly by Tony Leung. And then after this sequence, Wen Wu gives us, you know, here's the plan. Why did he bring the family together? It, it wasn't just to talk about how sacred names are. He has, as well as good of a job as he did with that. It's also... There's a reason why this reunion is happening now. I've always known where my children were, but didn't have necessarily a reason to bring the family together until now. And that we are going after your mom. She's being held captive. Here's how in, in Talo, here's how we're going to get there. And we get this beautiful water map uh, sequence. And this is another part where, you know, it, it's the warmth that Wenwu has toward his children that, you know, despite in some ways, you know, making a, a really aggressive push for like worst dad ever, uh, there are moments where, you know, he counters that own, you know, argument, you know, that you see that there does seem to be some genuine care 
and bond and, and a warmth of a father who loves his kids and, and loves his wife and, and just wants that family to be together again. And, and you believe that. But also what's very interesting for this as an audience member, I talked about at the very top of this, the shifts that this movie makes. And they've hinted at the surreal. They've hinted at the fantasy, you know, a more something more mythical in nature. But you could say that what happens in the very beginning in the flashback sequence is really more of a, a romanticized memory as opposed to what actually happened. Because the present day action sequences that we get are much more grounded and practical like we would be used to seeing. So we're not yet convinced or even being meant to be convinced yet that we are in a fantasy film type of space. And then we get this, you know, water map with the magical forest and and all of that. That's that's really setting us up for, you know, it, it's not the sharp turn that we're about to get when we're reunited with one Trevor Slattery. But this is this is our first clue of like, no, we really are going to make a turn in this uh, much more fantastical direction. Yeah. And I have to say, I thought they did it really well. I'm a little mixed on this. Just the story choice. Not again, not the execution. Right. I actually wish we spent more time in San Francisco or in the United mm-hmm. States and got to see more of or understood more of how living in America may have impacted Shang-Chi mm. and his view on his father and, sure. you know, just the traditions and all that, because that's a, a huge element of what in the diaspora Asian Americans struggle with. Uh, and that's a big theme of this story of this story. Right. The movie is very much about you can't ignore your traditions and your family connections and you have to embrace them in order to move on and to really realize who you are as a as a individual, you are that as well as more. And mm. I wish we got a little bit more of that, but you're right. Then it takes this turn that most people, as we get into the third act, like if you've just watched the trailers, you don't have any idea what's no. coming. <laughs> no. And that's, I thought that's what they did a masterful job of. I think so. And I think this is kind of our first clue and, and you might not be fully cognizant of it as it's happening and then, you know, when we're in the underground, you know, holding cell, because obviously, you know, uh, son and, and daughter don't immediately buy into the idea that, that mom's alive, especially when when we was saying like, well, I mean, they're thinking like mom's dead um, and it's the idea of getting her back is great. But like that also seems impossible. So what's your plan if it doesn't work out, like burning the village to the ground? It's like, well, shit, that seems bad. Uh, so obviously they're not on board. Uh, Wenwu does not uh, is not happy about them not being on board, and so they're locked up. And we hear some scary, scary noises, sort of. Although I totally that, that, that's Trevor Slattery. You can't. Uh, I, I'm one of the original, you know, backers of Iron Man three and supporter, one of the longtime supporters and defenders of Iron Man three. And I love Trevor Slattery. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh yes. Uh, so, uh, they go toward that noise, uh, despite Katie's objection and we are reunited with Sir Ben Kingsley as Trevor Slattery. And, um, you know, his, his best moment is yet to come in in a car, but just seeing this character again and seeing Ben Kingsley, you know, take it into, uh, a very familiar space from Iron Man three, but also things that are different. Like he credits uh, federal prison for getting him clean. Um, and now he's just, re- you know, back to his passion of acting. But I, I talked about, you know, the, the sharper turn to fantasy. Yes. When the faceless chicken pig shows up, 
then, you know, here is not just, uh, you know, heightened reality within memory where things can be embellished and exaggerated. Here it is right in front of our very eyes in the present day in this story, this uh, this mythical creature uh, that's right here. And, and has uh, and look that to they they very intentionally put that point on it like you're real <laughs> for Trevor to be relieved by that to tell us as well as the audience that, you know, in this world, this is real. Oh, Sir Ben Kingsley is so good. It's just an incredible performance. And I think it's to your point about the abomination and you kind of wish they had kept that under wraps until being able to see the film. I definitely wish that it happened with Trevor as well. Yes. It was weird because they, he wasn't in any of the marketing. You didn't really see it. And then suddenly he's like, with the main cast and the world premiere right. broadcast all over. And I'm just like, that's weird. I wonder if they, there was some business and negotiating going on or I mean, something. I, I, I don't <laughs> feel, why, why did that happen? I, I've been, I've been wondering the same thing because I don't think that Ben Kingsley is the kind of guy where they're like, you know, we want you at the premiere, but we're going to have to sneak you in because, you know, we can't let, the audience know that you're in the movie. We don't want to spoil a surprise. I feel like that's the kind of thing that Ben Kingsley would absolutely 100% agree with. So the fact that that didn't happen tells me that it probably wasn't even suggested for whatever mm. reason. And, and that kind of confuses me. Um, I, what I will say they did save for me as far as a surprise goes, because I fully expected the whole way that we would see Trevor Slattery, in this movie, you go back to the all hail the King Marvel one, uh, Marvel one shot. He was kidnapped and told that he was going to meet the real Mandarin. And so I always, even though there is no real Mandarin, but I always expected it. Once they announced the title of this movie, go back to comic con 2019 hall H and Kevin Feige says the title of the movie. He doesn't just say, Shang-Chi, which is what we expected because we already knew that they were developing a movie and, and all of that. We knew that Destin Daniel Cretton was going to direct. And so we already had all the information we needed to say that there was going to be a Shang-Chi movie. But then when he finished, when he completed that title, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, I'm like, oh, pff, Trevor's dead. Uh, he's done. <laughs> Trevor Slattery is going to die in this movie. And so that's all I really expected was to see Trevor Slattery pop up only to be executed in this movie. So the fact that like he found his place as like the court gesture for the 10 rings and was able to use that to survive all these years. Uh, and then of course, you know, carry on and, and still have, you know, a decent part in this story. Um, so I, it would have been great to not have any confirmation at all that he was in the movie, but I already had enough of an expectation that I, I will take the win of the surprise at just what his role was in this. Cause it's not at all what I would have anticipated. Yeah, I totally agree. They did a masterful job of integrating him and not just having him be a throwaway, not just wasting his talent and his character. Yep. And there's a little bit of a flip side to it too. It's a double edged sword. Cause I thought he was hilarious. He was amazing. Mm -hmm. And they, again, masterful job of integrating him into the story as Morris's caretaker slash interpreter. Right. So awesome job. That was a great way to do that he played a much larger role than I ultimately thought that he would. And of course there's limited time This is already over a two hour movie. So right. you're the more he gets the laughs and the lines and the screen time, you're getting less of, and as we get into this, 
Shaolin plays a much lesser role as we get into the climax, into the third act. And I was disappointed by that. I would have mm-hmm. liked to see her step up and get more of the screen time and have a more crucial role. But everybody's fighting at this stage for lines and time. And so, again, in a vacuum, I loved Trevor and I love what they did with him uh, from a macro level because he played such an important role. I thought like Katie and Shaolin kind of had to take a backseat. I was a little disappointed. Yeah, I can I can see that. I think that, you know, certainly, I mean, there's my own love of Trevor Slattery as a character that I'm just like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll take this time with Trevor. But you're right. I mean, that there's no satisfying amount of screen time for Xiling or, or Katie or, frankly, uh, Death Dealer. I mean, that could have been a relationship <laughs> that was built up more um, as opposed to having so much of Trevor Slattery in this movie. So that's something that, you know, I, I, I think it's fair. Uh, I think it's fair. Well, I mean, any criticism you have would be, <laughs> would be fair potentially, but, uh, yeah, like I, I totally get where you're coming from there. Um, but, uh, to give Trevor Slattery a, a little more love, um, you know, when we get to the next moment where, you know, well, I mean, there is a great action sequence, the escape from the compound, um, that I really enjoyed and, and the whole bit with razor fist car and that making being something that Katie likes about him is <laughs> the ridiculous, uh, paint job on the car. Um, but why not? It, it, it does seem like Katie's style as we've been educated Definitely. to kind of understand it throughout this movie. Um, but when we get to, of course, we're at the edge of the forest and, and we already know if they wait a couple days, they can go through the path that will open up that when Wu and, and his army are going to go through, but there's another way through as long as you have a guide and they just so happen to have one with Morris uh, and, of course, an effective translator in uh, in Trevor Slattery. But that Planet of the Apes bit um, for Trevor Slattery, I, I, I've i barely recovered from that, uh, from how hard <laughs> I was laughing during that whole thing. That it feels like a bit that could so easily fall apart, but the deadpan nature of it for Ben Kingsley, he sells the crap out of that. And I just, I, I was all three times I've seen it. I mean, I already know the joke well enough by now and I know every line and, and how it's going to escalate and pile on uh, with, you know, the monkeys only acting as if they were riding horses. Um, <laughs> it's just, it never stops being hilarious. Is really well done. And the, the way they crafted that whole sequence, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's really intense. They're driving through this magical forest and it's just frenetic pace. But then for him, and yeah. then that's contrasted with him, with the jokes and the, it's just masterfully done. It was really fun. Yeah. 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 And, and the whole like stay in the pocket thing as they were uh, going through the forest where it's at some point where just like, I mean, I understand where Trevor's like, I don't know what else to say. This is the only advice I'm getting from the faceless chicken pig. Um, but also Katie's perspective of like, this isn't helping me at all. But they made it. Um, they made it. They make it to Talo. And there is, I talk about the creative shifts in this. You know, it's one thing to give us a, a water map. It's another thing to give us one mythical creature. But to take us into, you know, literally, as they explain it in this movie, a whole other dimension. And it's not just one creature. It's not even just one type of creature. It's several different species uh, that we see. And it is, I mean, it is a huge shift for this movie that, as you pointed out, like the trailers 
are not giving you this. I mean, you get a little bit, there was the shot of uh, Shang-Chi underwater with the Great Protector, so you know there's something going on there, but the way the trailer uh, showcases that, that could be a dream. Like, that doesn't have to be a thing that's actually happening, let alone is it in a place where there are mythical creatures all over the place. Like, it's, it's not necessarily telegraphing that. So when you get to it, um, this is where I, I mean, I appreciated this about the movie and its creative ambition as, you know, I, I mentioned it's going across genre, across subgenre, and now it's it's had the more grounded martial arts films and, and influences that are, are, are apparent there. But now you're going into a more mythical nature of it, the whole idea of, of myth, of legend uh, that comes into this. And leaning into it without apology, you know, it, it's unabashed the way that they approach this. Like they they get through the forest, they drive through the waterfall and this is real. And, you know, that the commitment to that and the way that they execute it, um, I was really impressed by. I really like you describing it as with, without apology, because it's true. The ambition, which you've referenced several times, is exactly spot on, because I think most films, not just. MCU is like one of the most ambitious there is, but even other films, they would just say, here's one, you get the mm-hmm. little faceless chicken and then we're going to get a, a dragon fine. And that would be enough because mm-hmm. first of all, that probably costs everything like the right. whole film's budget. But that, but the fact that they have, it's almost like Jurassic park for the first time, right? You go into right. this mystical world in Talo and you're seeing all these very authentic East Asian, uh, especially specifically Chinese mythology inspired creatures mm-hmm. Uh, like the nine-tailed fox and things like that. It's just beautiful, and it makes audiences really feel that sense of wonder that the those in the car, that Katie, Shang-Chi, and, and all of them are really experiencing for the first time. You're, you're going on that experience at the same time. It's really amazing and beautiful. It, it, it was great. That, and that's the moment where it's like, oh, we haven't seen that much of the third act in the trailers. No, we absolutely have not. And I'm delighted by that because we've complained about certain things. Oh, we wish we didn't know this. We wish we didn't know this. But there's an entire act of the movie <laughs> that uh, we really didn't know uh, to expect uh, going into it. Um, but I, I also just love the kind of the 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 visual, like the symbolism of that, of like, here's this beautiful mythical place, but it's literally right on the brink of darkness, right? They're right there at the gate, the dark gate, you know, and, and behind it lurks the dweller in darkness whom we'll eventually see. Um, but as we're, you know, learning this and we're catching up, we're meeting um, Auntie Nan, uh, Michelle Yeoh, another legend that we're just treated to in this movie. And, you know, as all of this is happening, we are seeing what Wen Wu is experiencing. And this is a moment that uh, Destin Daniel Cretton called out at uh, opening night at El Capitan Theater in Hollywood. And it's a moment worth calling out. And I'm, I'm glad he did to get the audience to pay extra attention to it. Because when we talk about the masterful performance of Tony Leung, and as you said, so much performance just with the eyes, um, I, I think maybe the best, uh, the moment that encapsulates that idea the best is this one where he's in his library by himself it's this very quiet moment he knows what he's about to do and his whole mission and everything but what is it actually about and it's about when he turns to his left and he sees his wife and he's immediately back in that moment um, of just being cuddled on the couch with his wife and his kids um, and everything was perfect and everything was whole and he is emotionally affected by that moment 
and then Razor Fist comes in and sad dad has to turn off the tears and go back to being, you know, the military leader that he is, the warrior king. And he gives Razor Fist that, like, get the men ready. You know, tomorrow we go to war, all that sort of stuff. And then as soon as Razor Fist turns around and goes, and granted, this is not all one take. I know how things are made. These are different shots and they cut them together. But Tony Leung still has to sell each of these moments in the moment as he's performing. So you cut back to that same emotional effect that he was just having, like the tear in the eye. It's right back there. And it's just that complete. It is the it is the the tremendous sense of loss that the character is experiencing in that moment with also the faint optimism in him, maybe kind of doubting, but ultimately hoping and committing to this idea that his wife really is still waiting for him because it's the only thing he has to hold on to in this moment. And it's the only thing that he feels is going to allow him to not just get her back, but his entire family back. Yeah. And this is what he's been building towards for decades, presumably, or I guess at least a decade now, right? Mm -hmm. Everything since that moment of loss, since that moment of regret, if I had had the rings, this never would have happened. And now he's, he's gotten them back or, or reused them again. And now he's been leading towards this moment. So that moment of just like, this is my mission. I've been waiting this long. I've set this all up, right? right? In bringing Shang-Chi and Shaolin together in Macau so that I could grab them both at the same time and building the 10 rings to where they are and then finding Talo. This is the moment. And so, like you said, it's a beautiful performance. He's super intense um, and layered at the same time and scary, mm-hmm. right? Here, it's, you really see him like, oh man, this isn't going to end well <laughs> for lots of people. Right, because when we talk about what's scary, like we, we cut back to Talo and Shang-Chi had pretty much just let Katie kind of carry on with the idea because they were interrupted with the whole, you know, chicken or vegetarian or beef or vegetarian and just uh, beef then. That the story was kind of interrupted and allowed Shang-Chi to kind of settle into the lie that when his father sent him on a mission to kill someone for the first time that he didn't actually go through with it. Well, he did, and we see why. You know, we've known that their mother had died. Now we see how. Um, we see that Shang-Chi was there, and he witnessed the entire thing. And then we see that, you know, his father taught him this lesson about blood debts. And, and we see Wen Wu going out and, and starting that path to revenge and then leaving it to Shang-Chi to complete that path um, with the uh, with the very, you know, of course, the, with the last person, the person who was being held most responsible for uh, his mother's death. And so when we, you know, when we get to that moment, like I, I love the moral complexity of that in that, you know, uh, Katie is much more forgiving of 14 year old Shang-Chi than maybe you were of uh, him leaving Shailing, <laughs> where she says like, you know, because, you know, Shang is you know, he's seeing himself as a murderer because he did murder a guy. Um, granted, he had reason uh, to murder that guy, um, but also, as, as Katie points out, like, look, your father trained you to be an assassin beginning at age seven, and then he put that blade in your hand at age 14 and sent you to go kill the guy. Like, you realize how messed up that is, right? And I love that for Katie, like, she doesn't mince words. Like, she doesn't go with, like, the most poetic way of saying it. It's just, it's messed up. You know, it's, it's reminiscent of, you know, Star-Lord uh, in a in a completely different way of Star-Lord saying like, this is our chance to give a shit. Like when it's, you have a character that is just brutally honest and it isn't necessarily about the polish. It's just about 
the heart and and the truth of the message um and trying to get shang chi to to see that he's not responsible for for what he did and and it all still comes back to to wen wu but people can tell you that all day long but you know shang chi went through the experiences that he did and so of course we're going to still see him being affected by it and this is a great acting performance um in this scene amongst many others and pretty much all the others in this movie by simu lu as well yeah and i love the way you, you frame that because it's true like again katie being in my opinion the P, the point of uh pov character for the audience right she just says exactly what we're thinking like that's that's just messed up and as sad as i, I as sad and kind of upset i am at shang chi for ditching his sister I don't blame him for what you said for do, pulling off the assassination um, because I mean, straight up out of the comics, like he he's essentially deceived and also he's grief stricken too. He Absolutely. has to watch all that. Right. Right. Like he, he was there and he had to see that. And so, yeah, I think that part rings totally true. Yeah. I mean, from age seven to 14, you don't learn that lesson that unless you watch like enough Batman movies or something like that, where they tell you, <laughs> you know, revenge doesn't actually solve anything and won't ultimately make you feel any better. Um, Shang, but I, I think Shang Chi already kind of knew that. Like he's not yeah. like, thanks, Dad. Uh, when he gets handed the blade when he's fourteen, like he's not happy about it. Um, you know, yeah, he, he goes through with it because he believes that this is right. But uh, in that moment, but it only, I mean, his, I think his gut tells him every instinct he has tells him it's wrong. But there's another part of him that says he has to, you know, carry on, you know, for his father. And he thinks in some that in that warped sense, because his father has allowed him and influenced him to think this, that this is also part of honoring his mother as well. But he knew it wasn't, which is why as soon as he did it, he ran away from it. Um, So like he he knew he shouldn't have done it. And then he ultimately did it and, you know, had to live with those consequences for the last 10 years in this story. And so. Um, then we see we're, we're cutting to kind of the, the beginning of like the sixth stage final battle. Cause this, <laughs> there's so many stages to this, but when the 10 rings, they arrive in Talo and we see that the people of Talo, they are ready with their dragon scale armor and weaponry. Um, they are ready to defend the dark gate. And of course, when reaction to this is just burn it to the ground. I love that moment with Guangbo, uh, when Guangbo is talking about how the reason they, you know, had to turn their backs on them. You know, he and uh, Wen Wu and Lee is because of Wen Wu's past. And, you know, he's just gives that careful how you speak to me. I've lived 10 of your lifetimes. Uh, great, great villain line. Because like Guangbo has such this uh, this wonderful presence uh, that's so, uh, you know, he's got that veteran presence. And to, to see him just be minimized in that way by a guy who's like, yeah, in Talo, Guangbo's a legend. From Wen Wu's perspective, eh, maybe like an impressive rookie, maybe, but that's that's about <laughs> it. Um, right, so, right. Yeah, and then we get to this, you know, this all-out war and the the all-out battle, and and it's great to watch this because we're getting good action beats. I mean, we're seeing the Guardian Lion, the Guardian Lions going to step up a little bit into the action, and then you see, um, we see Xiling in action, and you know, we see her demonstrating, of course, the skills that we've seen elsewhere throughout the movie. We're getting little cuts of like Death Dealer and, and Razor Fist action in there. But it's really the heart of this battle. You know, it's it's Shang-Chi versus Wen Wu. And, you know, I, I like that they take the time to isolate them in this battle. And they don't even really waste time doing that. Like Wen Wu kind of walks away from the main battle um, and Shang-Chi 
follows him and they have their their whole confrontation like the is this what you wanted and they trade these brutal uh you know verbal jousts at one another when they're just saying mm. like the gut punches were just savage in this one never like the emotional ones i mean the the practical ones i'm sure hurt pretty bad um but the emotional ones were the worst i mean when Wu saying that i mean accusing a guy who was like a seven-year-old kid of saying you just watched your mother die and of course at this point shang chi's training hadn't even started didn't start till after this so what was he supposed to do exactly i don't know so uh when Wu saying that is completely unfair but nevertheless hurtful um but then uh shang chi has his own comeback to that of you know you're you say you're doing all of this to save you know you save mom save your wife but like, what would she even think of you? Uh, she wouldn't even want you if this is the person that you've become, which leads to, you know, a punch into the water and an intro to the Great Protector. But um, as as great as the physical uh, fight was between, of course, the bigger battle that's happening in conjunction with all of this, and then Wen Wu versus Shang-Chi, but it just shows, like, it's it's the emotional core of this is, is where it's really at, um, as we see in this conflict. Yeah, they really did it such a good job of balancing like the action with the emotional weight. Because if you don't have that, it just becomes like a spectacle, which mm-hmm. a lot of people complain about in general. Like, oh, Marvel movies always end up with some CGI spectacle. And this does have that. But I thought that the anchor of the emotional relationship really carried through. I thought that was actually Simu's best performance uh, mm-hmm. from an emotional perspective. You know, when he says, like, your family needs you. Like, right. Just, you know, you're sa- like you said, you're saying that you're doing all this for our family, but your family's right in front of you, right. you know, step up and be the dad that you were supposed to be. This is your chance. Um, but you know, look in, in star Wars fashion, it's too late for him. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he knows that he's too far gone. And so, yeah, that, the, that part was really powerful. Um, I also look, we can't overlook by the way, real quick, Wang Bo, um, from Kung Fu hustle. And mm-hmm. this, this film has so many inspirations from Kung Fu hustle, not, the least of which is the rings. And so I just want to call that out too. Absolutely. And well, and, and Guangbo was a lot of fun. I mean, just what a crazy thing to do in the third act to establish a, a relationship that we're supposed to care about. And we do so with what, like six lines of dialogue between uh, Guangbo and Katie uh, and yeah. how well that works in just such in like the minimum amount of time and like literal words of dialogue between these characters. And yet it completely works. Uh, but also, I mean, the woman who kind of educates Katie on her aimless sort of path of, you know, you aim at nothing, you hit nothing uh, to, of course, set up, you know, the big hit that she's going to have uh, in the finale of this uh, sequence. But, uh, of course, after uh, Wen Wu briefly dispatches Shang-Chi and, uh, you know, makes his way to the Dark Gate, starts opening things up. And then we get the mini soul suckers or standard soul suckers, just not mega soul suckers um, making their way over. And, you know, I I get the whole like we need to join forces and then a razor fist natural reaction. Screw you. And then, you know, something really bad happens. So then immediately, yes, let's join forces. and, And that's a funny bit. And they do need to join forces to kind of sell what what's happening in this action sequence. That is wonderful. But. I don't think that was worth killing death dealer. So unceremoniously, I I felt like there's other ways to accomplish the same thing. So, and I know that, look, this is a character that some people, well, doesn't have any dialogue or whatever. doesn't need to, uh, it doesn't need to have dialogue to sell the past between this character and Shang-Chi. 
uh, even have a pass between this character and Shai Ling. There's a lot of things that could have been done with this character. And so I, I really, it, it kind of almost put the exclamation mark on, uh, and, and like, like this movie does so many amazing things. It, it seems weird to kind of latch onto this one thing, but hey, that's all I have because this movie didn't give me a lot of things <laughs> to complain about. So yeah, I have to kind of overemphasize these smaller things, but I, I do wish that that Death Dealer uh, was dealt a better hand than uh, than this death. Well said, perfectly said. I totally agree. I'm so sad about Death Dealer, not just because I think Andy is awesome and and really fun to see him do his thing, but like the Death Dealer had the best character design in the whole film. He his the costume, the look, everything is awesome. Andy's performance is awesome. And then yeah. also, like you said, it wasn't necessary at that moment from a story right. perspective. It's not like we were like, ooh, these like regular variety soul suckers are no, they're not scary. Oh, until they kill the Death Dealer. It was the the intensity was already there. People were already worried. And yeah. we were seeing the the soul sucking happening. We didn't really need to see that happen to the death dealer in order to raise the stakes. And even the way it was that, I don't think it did raise the stakes. It just made us be like, oh my gosh, that's how he's going to die. It, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, because it could have been literally any other character going through the same experience. And, and really what sold it to Razor Fist is when one of them attacked him and he couldn't get yes. rid of it. So it's already there. Um, but then, you know, we do get, you know, we're we've already been in this fantasy space now for a little while in this third act, but now we're like full blown fantasy where we meet the great protector. And I love that there's kind of just the rekindling of the bond in just a very spiritual way of, of the connection between Lee and Shang-Chi and the great protector, like literally breathing life into giving oxygen to Shang-Chi underwater, which explains why he's not drowning. Those air bubbles that are going into his nose. Um, they took the time to show us that, but then just the the magical emergence of this, the Great Protector launching out of the water and Shang-Chi riding it um, was just, I, I mean, it, it's a spectacular visual. It's so incredible. It, obviously, you knew, you had some sense of what the Great Protector looks like from the trailer, from the tease in the trailer. And then mm-hmm. if you like toys at all, then you've yeah. seen what he looks like as like a Funko Pop or whatever. Sure. And so you knew it was coming thought they did it really, really well. And the way that uh, the great protector looks just looks great because it was fierce, but it wasn't, um, you know, very much an Eastern dragon, um, water dragon, and just a great, great um, creature design. Really great creature design. And then, you know, this sets up, obviously the, the great protector kind of helps balance the scales a little bit in this battle against the soul suckers, but yeah, but of course, it's all for naught if uh, Shang-Chi can't stop Wen Wu from opening the Dark Gate all the way. And so that confrontation comes back. And I love that, you know, yes, there's spectacular fighting going on and everything that's happening with, with the rings. You're remembering it in your head right now as you're listening to this podcast and and how amazing it was to watch. And you're totally right about all of that. Um, I, I loved that so much. But it still comes down to the heart of it because it still comes down to what's at stake here. And it's a son trying to reach his father and trying to tell him like, you know, one of the most heartbreaking lines is when he's saying like, I have to save her, you know, that she's back there. And, uh, Shang-Chi just says, I wish that were true. And, you know, it's that battle between the two of them. And and meanwhile, the way that fight is constructed, it's Shang-Chi, showing through his fighting style that he's honoring his family. And that's what this is all about, right? And he's doing it by taking the harnessing the rings the same way his mother did, 
to defeat Wen Wu uh, the first time around. So to see him bring that back into it while never giving up on the idea of trying to reach his father uh, the whole way, you know, he could say whatever he wants about settling a blood debt, but that's really not what his intentions were uh, based on everything you see from him in this whole sequence. Yeah, he, at that point, he's just lost it, right? He's far, too far gone. He thinks he's what he's doing is is yeah. out of love, but it's just he's he's scorched earth at that point. Um, I thought you made a great point about how at that point, Shang-Chi has embraced his mother's legacy, he, understanding the her technique, the magical elements behind her fighting style as imparted by Michelle Yeoh's character, Jiang Nan. And I think that's just like a great tying that together because he, as we're about to talk about, like then he takes a part, portion of his father's legacy. And so he takes that important step of one from each parent and helping him move forward as a more fully realized person. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that, while I wouldn't put it up where there with like Darth Vader chucking the Emperor uh, on the second Death Star, the last act from Wen Wu is to save his son, you know, to push him out of the way as the mega soul sucker emerges. And I think there is this moment where, um, you know, another just brilliant uh, part of the performance of Tony Leung in that as fantastical as all of this is, there is a truth that that resides within the performance where all is lost at this moment. Like he's realizing that he's wrong. And rather than being devastated about being wrong and kind of being selfish about that in defeat, he takes that moment to maintain, like to lock in with his son's gaze and, you know, really kind of just, this is going to be our last moment together. And I know it. And he is very present in that moment. He could just be, you know, scared, angry, whatever, but he instead just locks eyes with his son, maintains that. And then, you know, if you want these rings, you have to prove to me that you're strong enough to carry them. Well, when, you know, Shang-Chi proved that. And not only did he prove that he was as strong as Wen Wu, he proved that he ultimately he was stronger um, through the compassion that he showed. And I think that's what Wen Wu is acknowledging as he passes on the rings. Yeah, the only thing I would say I wish we got, I wish we got here faster, a little bit faster, mm -hmm. because I would have loved to see Wen Wu and Shang-Chi take on the dragon oh, together. Cool. You know, yeah. yeah, like father and son back side to side, uh, shoulder to shoulder fighting. Maybe even Shaolin comes there too. And we right. get to see a glimpse of the family unity we never actually saw or after, you know, um, Lee died. Mm -hmm. And so it would have been really cool to see that right before it gets snatched away from us. Um, but at the end of the day, again, great eye acting again from Tony. Yes. And, uh, and then the moment that we've all been waiting for the, the passing on of the legacy. And, and I always say the rings represent more than just an amazing weapon. It's Tony's legacy. It's the legacy of a traditional um, family that many in the diaspora ignore and try to run from. We don't want the old stuff, the stuff that our parents grew up on and, and, and really that meant a lot to them. We, a lot of us, who, who are Asian American want to run away from that. And we want to just embrace the American side of us. Mm -hmm. And this passing on of that legacy of that relic is critically important to just the development of Shang-Chi um, moving forward. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I, what I do like is we did get maybe not as much as I, I would have hoped for, but still plenty of action beats with Shai Ling in this third act. And I, I like that she also had her own bond with the great protector 
and had a moment, a good save of the Great Protector. And so then, you know, that and of course, the the battle between the Great Protector and the Mega Soul Sucker and the different stages to that, where the Great Protector immediately has the advantage with the water. But then, you know, you feed more souls to the Mega Soul Sucker and it gets more powerful. And now it's going to steal the soul of the Great Protector. But Katie evens the score after, you know, the tragic death that you it happens very quickly, but you feel it when Guang Bo uh, goes in this. But then Katie fires the shot, and that allows you know the Great Protector to uh, to break free. But then it it still ultimately goes back to Shailing, and and more specifically though, in, in a much bigger way as far as the action beat Shang Chi with the you know Kamehameha fireball, as Katie uh, described it uh, later on in the movie. But that whole sequence, I mean, to me, like the fireball whole whole thing with the the rings that are like around the chest of the Mega Soul Sucker was cool. But I was also just getting a kick out of him, like jumping and leaping off of the rings, grabbing them in midair and being able to use them to kind of swing off of it. Like just very inventive in the way he's traveling with the rings, not just fighting with them. Um, His use of them already feels like he's putting his own stamp on it as opposed to just doing all the same things we saw his father uh, Wen Wu doing. And so Shang-Chi kind of establishing his own, having the legacy of his father with the rings, but establishing his own identity within that in the action beat. And then of course, just, the obvious coolness of the whole fireball thing and exploding the mega soul sucker um, and, and very, very like uh, graphic death of <laughs> the mega soul sucker. Like you see those chunks, um, but everything about that sequence was, was very cool and just a, a great kind of physical representation of like this fully formed. Well, not that anybody's ever fully formed, but this whole other level that Shang-Chi is reaching within his own identity. And then of course his power level. Right, and not to mention the little bit of a redemption between Shang-Chi and Xiaoling. Yeah. Right, when it looked, it was looking bad, and I was going to be angry if Xiaoling died. Yeah. Oh, man, that would have ruined the movie for me. And so I'm so glad that that didn't happen, that they reinforced that point and brought it back and tied it up nicely of I'm not leaving you again. And that helps to repair their relationship. And we'll see where it goes from here. But exactly like you said, it shows him starting to take that important, crucial step in his development as, as a hero, as a person, as an individual, Katie gets that Luke Skywalker, a new hope moment of mm. just, you know, shooting that shot. And I, I really liked those. All of them had a little, a little bit uh, of the spotlight and it was great. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And then, you know, the resolution to it that, you know, now they, they honor the fallen. And I think they did a really good job of showing that, look, it's, Everybody who died in this battle mattered to someone who was there, obviously. But of course, our so we see that it's happening for everyone. But our points of focus, it's been this family. And, you know, they don't just honor their mother. They do honor their father, even though, yeah, I mean, he's the cause of a lot of these people dying. Uh, nevertheless, you know, he, he meant well, sort of, in his own warped sense and being corrupted by the dweller in darkness through the rings and all of that stuff. Um, but seeing them kind of honoring you know, what was good about uh, about their parents, I thought was a really sweet moment to end this movie on. I know it's not like the literal end last scene of this movie, but it was great that they took, you know, the, the moment to do that instead of just immediately jumping to the, you know, the funny bit at the end with, with Wong uh, coming calling. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it was important. We've talked about the emotional weight so much of this film and to put a, an end cap to that, I think was important. And Look, this isn't just an Asian American thing. I think all a lot of us have complicated relationships with our parents. Yes. And we may have one or two parents where 
the relationship maybe doesn't end great at the end of the day. And, mm. um, but still they obviously are our parents. And so I think it was an appropriate way to honor like, yeah, to them, maybe he, he really didn't do great. He wasn't a great dad, but mm. they still just show that level of respect that he nevertheless is their father for better or worse. And it's still healing for them too to be able to move on. Right. And I think that's part of the, you know, amongst the the themes of family within this and, you know, the relationships that people have and, and what connects people, what makes them whole. It's, it's usually each other, um, you know, as far as finding uh, those bonds and how important they are. But it's also understanding how complex all of that is. You know, we talk about Tony Leung as this very complex type of character that it's not it's not love to hate him, hate to love him or, or anything as simple as that. It's just you you hate what he does and yet you still kind of love him. And that in a lot of ways that represents family bonds, um, whether it's chosen or whether that's the way, you know, it's blood or, or whatever it may be that you can disagree with. You can even hold accountable your family members, but um, there, there, there's a love that doesn't go away um, because there, that's just the, the strength of the bond. And there will always be those moments that will suggest to you that uh, that what you're feeling is real and what you're feeling is reciprocated, even though it's not always in the most constructive way. And that, by the way, is, is not me endorsing dysfunctional relationships. Uh, we're dealing in the context of a heightened uh, reality in this and the way that all of this unfolds um, that I thought was really, really compelling and, and drove the emotional core, the emotional stakes uh, of the story, which, you know, you could say all of Earth is at stake if the dweller in darkness wins. OK, great. Um, but really, it's it's not the souls of everyone on earth that's at stake in this story, even though that's kind of the macro level of it. The heart of this are the souls that are at stake within this story. The souls of Shang-Chi, Wenwu, Shailing, uh, their mother Lee, uh, of course, and, and even Katie to an extent. Um, that Those are the real stakes of this movie uh, that they sold very, very well. And then, you know, our last scene before we get into mid and post credit scenes, you know, I, I love bringing it back to like, you know, they were doing nothing with their lives and now they've gone and they've saved the world uh, within the last couple of weeks. And of course, that story not being believed because just because you know that, um, you know, people disappear in an instant in this universe doesn't mean your two loser friends uh, are ones who save the world. Um, so I, I love that. And then, of course, Wong uh, showing up and, and calling for not just Shang-Chi, but also Katie, um, I, I thought was a, a really great bit. And, and just... I mean, it's kind of the perfect thing. If you're launching a brand new franchise, you've told a story that was completely dedicated to these characters. But now, you know, obviously there will still be stories that are focused specifically on them. But yeah, they are part of a much bigger universe. And, you know, now we all know it and we all get to see it. Yeah, it was so cool to see Wong play that kind of crucial role because obviously he's um, one of the first like Asian heroes in the MCU. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really like that. And I, like you said, it was great because all too often in these stories, it's like they go, go off and become heroes. And then it's just like, well, what about all the people who knew them before? Like what's their reaction? So we actually right. got to see their old friends. I, I, I love that. It was really cool. Yeah. Like, you know, of course they wouldn't buy it, you know, <laughs> not, not at first mention, of course not. You know, you need, you need a sling ring for proof. So, which Wong had. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and then all of this is great. We'll sum up our, our thoughts on the movie in a moment, but I want to get through these uh, tags r- real quick. So the mid credit scene, 
I wonder the same thing all of you are wondering. Uh, Bruce Banner is back to being Bruce Banner. Um, hey, look, after he was Professor Hulk or Smart Hulk, whichever you prefer in the comic books, he went back to being Bruce Banner and he's gone back to being Hulk in temporary states, more permanent states. It's just whatever in the comic books. As opposed, as far as what's going on right now, I would say it explains a much less expensive uh, appearance by Mark Ruffalo and She-Hulk on Disney+, Plus. Uh, is the way I would explain it. Um, but hey, look, if he was able to turn himself into Hulk permanently, it stands to reason that he'd be able to turn himself back into Banner on a more permanent or semi-permanent temporary basis. Um, hasn't been able to fix his arm, though. That's still in a sling. Uh, we see Captain Marvel... New haircut, so it's grown out a bit since Endgame, although the costume still looks very similar to Endgame Final Battle. Um, but the big mystery of this are it's the Ten Rings, and uh, of course they know that uh, they they know that Wenwu had them for a thousand years, give or take. But uh, everybody comes to the conclusion that they are much much older than that. And when Shang Chi used them. As Wong says, they felt it in Kamartage, and it's this beacon that's going out, you know, a beacon of unknown origin and unknown destination as far as where it's coming from and who or what it's trying to reach. Um, so we don't know any of that. And I have all the same guesses that you all have. Celestials, Mephisto, and, and all those things. You know, Kang, of course, you know, somebody who's older than time or been around at the end of a sacred timeline or whatever. Um, all of those connections are, are potentially there. Um, and they're all very, uh, they're all very, very exciting. But the best part of the moment, all due respect to the karaoke as well, the best part of the mid credit scene for me was that moment of Wong just, you know, the quiet moment of Wong just taking that time to tell Shang-Chi and Katie that the, the trajectory of their lives was about to change. And it's so meta, you know, Simu Liu has even acknowledged it. Like Benedict Wong is is telling these two actors like, yeah, you're part of the MCU now, like nothing's ever going to be the same about your life. Um, but also within this, just never mind outside the story, inside the story, like we know the incredible journeys that these characters go on. And so for Wong to kind of give this word of caution uh, to them, while also you just know that like no matter what he says, nothing will prepare them for everything that they are uh, about to experience. But I, I love that moment. I'm trying to think of another example of something where we've seen that. I mean, I guess Nick Fury telling Tony, you know, you become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. But it, it rings different now for us as an audience because we know how big that universe. Well, we don't know yet how big it's going to get, but we already know how massive it's been. And so it just it totally hits in a different way when Wong says that to Shang-Chi and Katie. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this mid-credit scene. I think go, going backwards, yeah, when we hear Nick Fury say that to Tony, we also are prospective. We mm -hmm. don't really know what it's yeah. going to be, but now we're all we have the benefit of, of hindsight, and yeah. that it, a bigger universe than was one Avengers movie. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and so it, it is very impactful. And these are essentially two kind of regular people who just suddenly has been thrown into this world that we don't get too much of that. Um, I, this is such a like random thing, but in that like little sequence of having Carol and Bruce, I, I thought it would have been really cool to have Shuri part of that too, or mm. even T'Challa. Of course we can't have T'Challa, but it would have been cool to have that element too, just because of like the alien, they mentioned like, it's not Wakandan, you know? So right. I thought that was cool, you know, and we'll see who they're calling. I mean, everything from everything you mentioned, could it, 
go to Fin Fang Foom? Right. Like the room, you know, could it go to the aliens that created the rings? You know, so I'm very interested to see where they go from here. Yeah, it's yeah, I, I totally get, you know, a lot of the thin uh, thing fang foom speculation that's out there and it, and it totally makes sense. But then there's just always that wild card of not everything plays out in the MCU like it does in the comic book. Right. So it, it makes it a lot more difficult to make those assumptions. But I'm glad because then it'd be way too easy to guess if they were doing just everything the way that it laid out in the comic books. It could be so many different things. And of course, does that mean these characters might uh, pop up in Multiverse of Madness. I suppose it does, but I don't think this guarantees that. You know, they've checked in yeah. with the Doctor Strange world, and then maybe it's somewhere else, uh, or maybe it's a, a mid-credit scene for them. Uh, of course, I, I really liked the um, Destin Daniel Cretton Brie Larson reunion um, for the mid-credit scene, which I know he's talked about in interviews, and I got a kick out of that. I mean, a huge reason why I was so excited about him directing this movie is I love Short Term Twelve. Uh, which he directed and, and with uh, Brie Larson and a lot of people who've blown up over the last uh, yeah. several years in, in movies. And and so, you know, that was a, a huge I mean, I already like uh, other films like Just Mercy and everything. But uh, Short Term 12 is where I'm like they got the director of Short Term 12 to make Shang-Chi. OK, uh, <laughs> good. Uh, so I, I liked getting that tiny little uh, reunion because uh, I think they've been together on, on a few projects now. And then the karaoke bit. Um I'm all about it. And, you know, you could say, oh, it's too silly after such like an ominous sort of thing of the trajectory of your lives. But like, no, it's true to these characters that things are daunting and there's a lot of heavy things ahead. But that's all the more reason to take a moment to just have some fun. And given that Wong is the guy that we saw just vibing by himself to Beyonce, I totally believe that he is down for a karaoke night. Uh, So especially with these new recruits who are, you know, are just like going to give Wong like the most fun he's had. Uh, because I feel like uh, Shang-Chi and Katie, I, I feel like they're a better time and a better hang than Stephen Strange most of the time. Not to take anything away from him. I'm sure he's fun. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't mind going out to party with uh, with Shang-Chi and Katie. Um, and then the post credit scene, this one just threw me for a loop in a good way because, you know, we hear uh, Shang-Chi referencing how his sister has gone to, you know, shut things down for the Ten Rings. Not quite. Uh, She has taken over. So she's expanded her operation with her underground fight ring, and now she has taken over the Ten Rings. And I I love this ending because it goes into the moral ambiguity of this character, that she has a code. There are certain things, you know, she's willing to stick up for people like Katie um, but sometimes sticking up for people means doing it the way you think is best and not necessarily the way everybody else deems as the most moral, moral or ethical uh, approach. And so I I don't think it's some people are saying, oh, this sets up Shailene to be a villain and maybe, but I don't necessarily think it's that simple because nothing in this movie was that simple. So I, I think you're having a character who certainly will have her own points of view, her own perspective on things that maybe other heroes in the MCU won't necessarily agree of, but that's not the same as her being evil. So I could see her being an antagonist in one story and an ally in another um, as she you know, has her own empire. I mean, she already had her own empire, but now she's got an even bigger one taking over the Ten Rings. Um, and my other takeaway of this was, um, with all due respect to the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Sharon Carter, this is the real power broker in the MCU, Shai Ling as the leader of the Ten Rings. Yeah, and I definitely don't think that she's a villain. Um, I think this, the way that it sets her up is she's not going to be an Avenger. 
She's not going to be squeaky clean and she's not going to be out in the, in the spotlight on the news, but I still think she's going to do, you know, heroic things in her own way. But like you said, maybe it's not always um, what everybody agrees is the morally right thing to do. She'll have some gray mm-hmm. um, in her to make her more interesting character. Um, I could see Shang-Chi if, if they do an Avengers film or if he's kind of working with kind of the more high profile superheroes needing her and her intelligence and maybe some of her, in, uh, her assets to, to aid him, but also it's, that's that balance. But also again, going back to, I, I don't want to harp on it too much, but it's important. Like that's another part of the legacy. Shang-Chi got her, the, um, his mother's fighting style and magic with the dragon. And then the ring from her dad, from their dad, Shaoling takes over the organization from her dad. So that's right. like the other element of, of, of being passed on and it's the organization he would never have given her that he explicitly excluded her from but you know despite his best efforts she's the most um prepared and appropriate one to take over it expands it as we see we finally see that she's included woman to be part of the the ten rings army um put her own twist on it and so i, I don't at all think she's a villain i think she's going to be an awesome character whether they do a disney plus show um, or they actually go ahead and give her her own film, which I think would be amazing. But I kind of think maybe Disney Plus might be the be- where they go. But um, I love the way they did her character. The only thing I'll say is I wish it was integrated into the main part of the story. We talked earlier about how she was a little bit sidelined mm-hmm. um, in the third act. I would have liked to see that part maybe even integrate. I don't know how they would have done it, but um, to, to the main plot would have been a little bit cooler just because she would have had more to do. I wouldn't want significantly more than what we got, but maybe something later in the film that not the post credit scene, but later in the third act that maybe called us back to that moment in the scaffold fight where she, you know, Shang-Chi is like hanging on to the guy to interrogate him and she just kicks him off the scaffolding and kills him. <laughs> says, oh, has, and did America make you soft? Which wasn't really fair. Like if you were paying attention, like she didn't see it. She was busy. But like those of us who were watching, like Shang-Chi had already killed like five guys at that point. So like he wasn't soft. Um, But it it was an illustration of like, okay, this is a character who's not going to be all that compassionate, not really going to mess around, doesn't even care that much about extracting information. It's just like if you're a target that's in front of me, you go away um, and I make you go away. So I I think that, you know, there I could have seen, uh, you know, Another example of that somewhere along the way, or if it's just one example, maybe an even stronger one uh, than what we got there, because as I said, Shang-Chi had already killed some guys. uh, So that didn't really seem to be an issue that they were disagreeing over is whether or not it was okay to kill. So, um, but overall, like, I think, I think it's all of the above. I I think it's Disney plus series. I think it's, uh, I think it's movies, even if it's not necessarily dedicated to the 10 rings or something like that. You know, it just feels like this is such a huge organization and Shai Ling is such a breakout character in this that I feel like we're just going to see her all over the place now uh, in so many different ways. And I'm here for it. And I didn't go into a Shang-Chi movie thinking, well, what I really want to see is what's going to happen with this character Shai Ling and how much am I going to care about her and how much of her future am I going to be invested in going forward in the MCU? But that's one of the best things about the MCU is, yeah, they they're on the money with the title characters, but they give you so many when they do it right, like Black Panther or like this film or like Guardians of the Galaxy with a character like Nebula, like the characters you don't go into it expecting to uh, care about quite so much. They become your favorites right alongside those title characters. So, you know, it, it's a testament to everything that they did in this movie that um, that we are just like, why not more Shailene? Because of course we do want more because she's uh, it's such a great job and a great performance by Munger Zhang. 
Um, I, I feel like we've said it over the course of, you know, the past two hours plus, but I also feel like I can't say it enough um, how much I love this movie and uh, all the reasons why I love this movie. And and this is having to do it from memory. Like we talked about off air, I didn't have the advantage of being able to like go through and replay this on Disney+. Plus. Um, so there's definitely more ground uh, I, I look forward to covering as we talk about this movie well into the future. But this movie is uh, has incredible and a, a remarkable level of ambition, but it's the execution that that ultimately makes it work. And I, I am just uh, I'm blown away by this movie. The more I've seen it, the more I think about it and the way that it's constructed and the way that it all comes together and, you know, from the performances, the writing, the direction by Destin Daniel Cretton, um, everything about this movie, uh, it just, it really, really, uh, it, it really soars. I, I, I'm just so, so impressed by it and, and so happy that we have it. This one, um, it, it really is something special, uh, just as it deserved to be. Absolutely. You I mean, I think you said it perfectly. And um, the best part is, you know, you know, it's a good story because we can't wait to see what's next. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's why it's like, I, I can't wait to see what's next, but also, um, you know, take a moment, uh, fellow MCU fans and savor <laughs> this one because <laughs> they're all pretty good. They're just not always as, as great as, as this one is, although they're generally pretty great. You all know what I think of these movies uh, and Disney Plus series. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really love this one and I'm so excited to have it as a new as the 25th entry, which is nuts uh, for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and just can't wait to keep watching it and uh, talking more about it. Hopefully you all listening uh, love the movie as much as we did and also enjoyed listening to this spoiler review. Um, Ron, so uh, once again, thank you so much for everything that that you did um, and that you continue to do to take this great film and help even more people see it and be impacted by it. Um, it's such a wonderful thing that you are. I know you're not doing it all. I know you're not doing it all alone, as you said, but you are helping to lead this uh, project with the Shang-Chi Challenge and partnering with others. Thank you so much uh, for doing that. But I know, um, you know, it's not all just about, I mean, that's already enough, uh, obviously. Um, but there's other places that people can, another project where people can keep up with you. So please uh, let them know where they can find you. Yeah, definitely. And thanks again for having me. I appreciate all the kind words and the support. Um, you can find all my work uh, at pocculture.com. So I hope you'll check out you know, it's a site that celebrates diversity in pop culture. You can find me on Twitter at, at POC underscore culture. I can't get the, the full one word thanks to a dead account on Twitter. Um, but on Instagram, I am at POC culture. So I hope you all check me out. Um, thank you, Sean, for having me. Huge fan of the show. And, you know, this has just been a lot of fun. And looking, looking forward to speaking more Shang-Chi and more uh, in the future. We will definitely do that. My thanks again to Ron for joining me for this Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings spoiler review. Make sure you find him on Twitter and POC Culture on Twitter. I will share links in the show notes. And then also make sure you're going to GoFundMe and checking out the Shang-Chi Challenge so you can contribute to the campaign that Ron has been sponsoring and leading. But as he also mentioned, there are other campaigns for more screenings to create more opportunities for kids to be able to see this extraordinary film, not just in theaters, but also via private screenings of the film via Disney Plus when the movie eventually arrives over there. And then also make sure you're following us at MCU Fan Show and all those places you can. So that's at MCU Fan Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so or on Instagram. It's at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for MCU Fan Show, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.